0: Welcome to Episode 310 with my guest Nikki DuBose. This episode is sponsored by American Public Media and their podcast, The Hilarious World of Depression, with host John Moe. Here's some of the funniest comedians like Maria Bamford, Paul F. Tompkins, and Dick Cavett talk about living with clinical depression. It's a chance to have a laugh, hear some real-life stories, and listen to honest conversations about a disease that should get more talk. Subscribe to The Hilarious World of Depression wherever you get your podcasts. This is the mental illness happy hour. Uh, my name, last I checked, is Paul Gilmartin. Um, this is a podcast about all the battles in our heads, past and present, uh, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, sexual dysfunction to, uh, everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. God, no. It's more like, uh, it's more like a waiting room that uh, that doesn't suck. Um, I'm not a therapist, but I am a pompous windbag. And people sometimes mistake that. I'm not a doctor, but I am a hypochondriac. So some of you may be very confused listening to this show. What? Who is this? Who is this guy that hates himself and yet manages to be arrogant? That's quite a feat he's pulling off. Um... Hey, a really nice listener emailed me and said, since you're uh, planning on traveling in 2017 outside the United States to try to uh, record uh, non-Americans, why don't you ask people to donate frequent flyer miles to you? And uh, I was like, that is an amazing idea. So email me if you have any frequent flyer miles you would like to uh, donate, um, email me at mentalpod.com at gmail.com. And um, as quick as possible, too, because there's a cap on how many you can accept within a calendar year. And obviously, we're almost at the end of uh, of 2016. So um, yeah, that would be awesome. I want to give a recommendation to a new Netflix uh, series that I'm watching. It's only four episodes. So I know they're going to fucking leave me just Dying, waiting for the next season, but uh it's called hip hop evolution, and it's uh you know like it the name sounds it's about the the birth of hip hop and it's and its evolution, and it is so it is so good um highly recommend checking that out um I once again am not looking forward to Christmas, I don't dread it mm, I don't know if that's true i You know what Christmas is to me? Christmas is really just people you've silently resented since childhood giving you stuff for your next garage sale. I mean, when you get right down to it, yeah, sometimes you get something that's good. But most of the time, the next time you touch that thing is you're giving it to somebody and that person's giving you a quarter. This is an email that I got from, uh, oh, uh, I don't know if anybody gives a shit, but, uh, update on the, uh, Justin Bieber hockey files. Uh, this week he played on our team now, uh, instead of against our team. And, uh, as you've heard me talk in the past, there's a guy in that league who, uh, has the most volcanic temper, uh, I've ever seen. He's been banned. I don't know multiple times kicked out, you know, for year long stretches. Um, I've seen him probably kicked out of games at least 15 times. Um, and (laughs) Justin Bieber scored a goal skated by their, and, and this guy was playing for the, for the other team. Uh, Justin skated by their, their bench. And I don't know if he thought he was trying to be funny or if he was really being a dick, but he said something and, uh, this guy on the other team uh, got really pissed, and and he's big. He's like 6'3", 220 pounds. And I, I said, uh, you know, just so you know, that is not the guy you want to fuck with because he has a switch that when it flips, all bets are off. And then all of the guys on the bench started telling stories about playing against this guy and his— switch flipping and the things that he's done to us. And and we are all guys that this guy even likes and the shit that he's done to us. Like for me, one time the puck was behind the net and he was frustrated. And so he took, he put his hand on the back of my helmet and rammed my face into the plexiglass, literally bounced my head off the plexiglass. And he likes me. So uh we just said to him dude just so you know when that switch flips uh you keep your keep your head up and sure enough about uh maybe 15 minutes later the switch flipped and uh he didn't he didn't uh attack he didn't get a chance to attack uh justin uh he got tossed out before that that um no actually justin left at one point, he just said, uh, "I got to get going." And <laughs> We're like, probably a good idea. If you want to, uh, if you want to sing and dance uh, in the next six months, that's probably a good idea. Now I'm second guessing myself about telling these stories because I'm like, does any do any of our listeners give a shit about a hockey? B about uh, Justin Bieber? But I don't know. I thought it was funny. All right, this is an email that I got from Christy, and um, she writes, uh, says some nice stuff. Uh, Today I'm on episode 295, and you made a comment about someone struggling with an eating disorder, and you jokingly said that the shame should come from eating McDonald's. Uh, Just a very friendly piece of advice. People with eating disorders really do feel shame about eating anything, really. Really? Some of us have uh, been working for years to accept that all food is just food. It's not poison. It's not evil. It's just food. With that being said, McDonald's, too, is just food. Our society has demonized fast food, and this makes it especially difficult to eat at one of those places. A person who has worked their way up to fast food often already has an extremely hard time eating without feelings of shame, guilt, embarrassment, and fear. No one eating at McDonald's or any other food establishment should feel shame. Food is just food, calories are just calories, and our body breaks it. All down the same way, shame and food should never be used together as what someone should feel. I know to you and many other listeners that this may not seem like a big deal, and normally it wouldn't be people with EDs eating disorders latch on. We can throw everything you said away and just pick out the shame. It's hard for you to remember all the things that might trigger people. It's really easy to slip up. It's hard to know what to say. And generally, you handle people's feelings so very well. Just try to remember in the future the people with any ED um, are extremely sensitive and often take things the wrong, the uh, wrong, the wrong, that just says, Things oh things wrong or literally, my advice would be to not mention food and shame together. Never say how gross something is or mention what other people are eating. This is standard for all kinds of eating disorders. Um, uh, please do not beat yourself up about this. I get the feeling you might just keep this in mind. Love the show, uh, Christy. I thought that was a really. Uh, I was glad that she emailed me because I think that's that's an important thing to know. I don't know if I, if if I will um. I will try to be conscious of that, but um, um, I, because there's so many things that that, that trigger people, um, that you know, I'm afraid at some point I'm just going to be tongue-tied, afraid to say or uh, have an opinion about anything. But I, I'm glad, uh, Christy, that you you emailed me that um, to remind me that um, everybody's experience of the world is not the. Not the same as uh as mine and i and I would actually disagree a little bit that to me food is is not just food because for me um when I eat food uh, that has like a lot of sugar or stuff in it, um it affects my mood and it can make my depression worse uh when i when I have to come down from it um, but I understand what you're trying to say, all right, I want to read. Uh, this survey it's uh, from the first day in therapy uh, and this was filled out by a guy who was under eighteen and um, what brought him to therapy is uh, oCD he writes severe issues with oCD anxiety and depression along with hallucinations and self hatred along with sorting out my confidence issues from the fact that I'm transgender um Uh, Starting therapy, I feared that they wouldn't know what to do and they'd give up on me. Uh, As of yet, uh, none of those fears have come true. Uh, What works best for me is having a safe place to talk about everything and it's an amazing escape for me. Uh, My initial impressions of my therapist. uh, My therapist is great, we can talk about things comfortably and have regular conversations while also working out the problems in my head. do you feel you can be honest with your therapist? Yes, I know that I'll have someone who I can tell anything without scaring them. And uh, I wanted to read that because um I thought it would be a, I think it's an important thing to hear, and I thought it would be a good uh reminder of the power of therapy because uh, our sponsor this week is Talkspace. And uh, if you've ever thought about going to therapy, but you think it's too inconvenient, it's too expensive... Uh, or it's embarrassing uh, to make it into an office, think about trying uh, Talkspace. It's an online therapy company. Uh, they make it super easy to connect with a licensed therapist. Uh, they uh, handpick one just for you based on the stuff you fill out uh, about yourself and your life. And you can do it for as little as 32 bucks a week. Uh, you can text, audio, and video message your therapist as much as you want. Uh, your Talkspace therapist can listen to you vent about whatever you want. Uh, So, to sign up or learn more, go to Talkspace.com slash M-I-H-H, as in Mental Illness Happy Hour. And as a special offer for you guys being listeners, you can use the coupon code M-I-H-H to get $30 off your first month and show your support for the podcast. Talkspace, therapy for how we live today. Okay, I want to do... Just a couple of struggle in a sentence. Right now, my abandonment issues are coming up. I'm like, oh, Paul, you are taking too long getting into the interview. You, oh, this is all they, everybody is about to jump ship and you should have realized it. You should have realized it. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Grace, who is gender fluid, and they write about their borderline personality disorder. Living with it is like copying a list of numbers written on a whiteboard while everyone else has a copy of the numbers. I have to double check, I do everything right, it'll take longer than everyone else and when I finally complete the problem, somehow it's wrong. Snapshot from their life. I finished my undergrad degree three months ago after nine years of working hard but also taking time off to focus on recovery. I spent months stuck in a depression I don't want to tell people about, so I'll stay in bed for days in a row, only to shower and brush my teeth before I see my family, so they'll think I'm functional and I'll lie about being productive. Uh, any comments to make the podcast better? Talk about BPD, please, I'm borderline personality disorder. Um, we have done several. Uh, thank you, by the way, for, for sharing that. Um it, We've done several episodes. Uh, of course, I'm always looking to uh, to do more because it's such a complex um, uh, disorder. And um, the episodes that come to mind, um, Susanna Brisk, uh, Celia Finkelstein, and I, th- I know there's more. But if you um, have any topic you want to listen to an episode ab- about or cover, just go to our website, Type in the search box keywords and episodes that touch on that will will pop up. Uh, a guy who calls himself, well, fuck, uh, writes about his depression. Feeling so much of everything that I instead feel nothing and I'm not sure which is worse. That is so good. Um, but his anxiety, every time you don't reply right away to my text, it's my fault and you probably never want to talk to me again. When you do reply, I can tell you're mad, even if nothing in your text implies. Uh, and it will still be the last time I talk to you. Fantastic. Snapshot from his life, sitting in the bathroom at work, unable to leave, because if I do, I will see people and I cannot deal with them not caring. And if they did care, that would be even worse, because I just would drag them down with me thank you for that. Um, a guy who calls himself uh, you say tomato and I can't speak today uh, about his ADD makes me feel like a border collie in a basement apartment that is so fucking good about his anxiety like I'm on a plane that's going down and I have an adult squid on my face which reminds me, one time I was doing stand-up years ago uh, in the Cayman Islands, and there's this place that you can go to um, during the day called Stingray City, and they, they have you, it's maybe 12 feet of water, and you have on scuba gear, and you all line up. Uh, you know, you and the other eight people on the boat—you all line up on your knees, basically like you're about to be executed—and you have a plastic bag with um, with whatever it is that that they eat. I can't—I can't remember what it was. Oh no, I know it wasn't. It the in the bag was squid, but it was stingrays that were, um, hence the name Stingray City. Fucking jackass. And so we're waiting there on our knees. We've all got th- these sealed plastic bags of squid. And, um, and all of a sudden, just out of the dark, you just see all of these stingrays coming at you. But because you're looking at them horizontally, it just looks like, like cardboard boxes, you know, like, like, uh, not a box, but like a, like a piece of cardboard, you know, like like an inch thick, and super wide, but you can't tell how big they are until they get right there, and then they pass in front of your face, and you see that these things are like the size of a, a Volkswagen, and they have these—I don't remember if it was one hole or two holes—that's like a vacuum that they eat through, and. I hadn't sealed my bag very well so this one sensed that that I had food plus they were probably conditioned anyway um and started eating the sucking at the calamari but it's e- either it was other stingrays or this thing's other holes started sucking on my skin like the strongest vacuum you've ever felt and it didn't hurt But it made me laugh so hard that when I laughed, my mask popped off. (laughs) I just remember just on my knees in the Cayman Islands, blind, getting hickeys uh, from stingrays. And thinking this this is a shame that I can't jack off. See, I I felt like that wasn't an interesting enough story and I had to put something in it that would make it better and it didn't, it made it worse. Hence, I'm a terrible person and that's it. All right. Uh, I have two more before we get to the interview. I'm sorry, one more. Um, Oh, and the snapshot from uh, his, his life is, I run... Uh, to help with my depression and sometimes I just stop and cry in the woods then I say sorry to the trees that is you guys are fantastic Clementines and Whiskers um, doesn't describe the issues that she struggles with but um, a snapshot from her life she writes um, I was blowing a guy despite him telling me how much he wished he was fucking his ex, and it was making me cry. He went into great detail about how much skinnier she was, how tighter she was, how prettier she was, how her sounds were better. Even though I got nothing out of it, even though I hated myself, even though I wanted to go home and starve myself, buy new clothes, cut, never speak to him again, I felt like it wasn't fair to stop blowing him until he came. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job. Mental illness.
1: No, I left that industry because I want change in that business. I refuse working on trying to get actually mental health education in the modeling industry. So we'll see how it goes.
0: You're also an author. You have a book uh, called uh, Washed Away from Darkness to Light.
1: Yes. Correct. There you go. You remembered.
0: Yes. (laughs) And it's about your uh, battles in recovering from the abuse you experienced as a child, sexual, physical, mental, emotional, mm-hmm. um, which then went on to repeat itself uh, when you started modeling at a at a young age. Mm-hmm. And um, give us a broad stroke of the issues that you struggle with uh, today or struggled with in the past.
1: Okay, so, well, thanks for having me on. It's good to see you. My you pleasure. look great.
0: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
1: um, so I basically struggled with pretty much everything you can imagine i remember when i went to the psychiatrist the first time you know and they have a little checklist of all the things it's like well everything I think. <laughs> um but um you know i was abused as a kid and i think that really can just lead to a whole bunch of other issues you know so i've struggled with depression um psychosis which is where you have hallucinations and delusions but I didn't know that at the time that that's what I was, you know, having, um, eating disorders. At first I had binge eating and then bulimia. I had that for 15 years and then that led to anorexia. Um, my mother and I, we had a very hard relationship. Um, she she had bipolar disorder and dissociative identity disorder, which mm. used to be called multiple personality mm-hmm. disorder. And um, you know, I struggled for a long time with I it took me a long time to say that I was an alcoholic, so I was like, No, I just used to drink a lot, but <laughs> I was an alcoholic. <laughs> and um, you know, I was addicted addicted to drugs. Um, and being in the modeling industry really just intensified that. You know, because when you get in that, you know, the upper echelon of that or really any career, you know, where you're around people that have a lot of money and access to things, it just was like a free for all. And that was bad for me because, you know, I'm not trying to bash that industry, but I am an addict and. Um, and I've been in recovery I've been sober for five years and congratulations thank you um free from an eating disorder for three and a half years, but a lot of that is due to the fact that I left that industry mm-hmm. yeah
0: um and uh, you you've also s- struggled with uh sex addiction
1: sex addiction for sure yeah, yeah I don't know how I left that one out there <laughs> um
0: any other things um I think that is it is it, is that it? i could have sworn there was one more thing i'm sure we'll stumble onto it uh as we uh, tell your story
1: yeah i'm sure we'll stumble on, stumble onto it but yeah i think we've pretty much covered all of it yeah yeah
0: so talk about your childhood give give uh give us some key moments some seminal moments from from childhood that you think uh, have informed who you are how you view the world um things that had a dramatic impact on you
1: you know I when I was a kid I when I was very small my mom my dad they divorced when I was two and you know I think when I was little I really wanted the world to be a certain way you know I think when we're kids we look up to our parents a lot um, I have a great dad and uh, I just before I even start talking you know, I really want to say that I don't blame my problems than anyone else. I think that's something I've learned now to not blame. However, I, you know, my mother got remarried uh, when I was two. And let's just say that I didn't have the best um, experience because there was a lot of abuse, there was a lot of turmoil. And
0: at the hands of who? Her new uh, at first husband?
1: It first it started with her new husband. And, um, you know, we have to call it like it is, right? You know, while I do believe that mental health issues um, are not anyone else's fault, when there's abuse, it does change your brain chemistry. It, mm-hmm. it really shapes you.
0: Well, what, you know, one of the things we stress on this podcast is um, it it's understanding where it comes from isn't the goal. Yeah. You know, that it, it's... It, if anything, it can help us... Uh, have compassion for ourselves to mm. stop blaming ourselves. That yeah. This is a weakness of mine that I'm depressed or anxious or I'm acting out or I'm drinking too much rather to say, okay, now that I understand my history, let's put that aside. Let's. This isn't to punish people who may have mistreated me. Let's now focus on how I can get better mm. and how I can manage these things and maybe even Go out and help somebody else who's struggling. Yeah, would it be fair to say that that's that's the way you look at it?
1: Yeah, definitely, hundred okay. um, percent. And you know, it was something that was totally out of my control as a kid. You know,
0: I don't know. I blame you. Maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe I'm jumping the gun and, first. And, and judging you uh, too quickly, but. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think you were a rotten little kid, and uh, you might if I take my shoes off? By the way.
1: Oh no, no, no. Okay,
0: um, Th- that go ahead. You'd
1: be the first person to blame me, but there you go. You know, I. Um, but no, it. You know, so I think children they just don't have any. They don't have any outlet. You know, they don't have anywhere to go, and so I really repressed all of my emotions starting from four. Um, that I was physically abused, verbally abused, emotionally abused. You know, on and on. And so that's that impacted how I saw the world around me, you know. And when you don't have anyone to to turn to,
0: mm-hmm. what do you do? Could you be specific? I, I think we know what you mean, but could you be specific about how you view viewed the world?
1: I think before that, I was I was very I was very innocent, very young, and I. I had a big heart. I loved everybody. I was always very shy. But then after I started to be abused, I I really just I was very afraid. I saw everyone as bad. I became very paranoid, you know, and after that actually is when I started to see Shadows a lot, I started to see it's gonna get kinda of weird, but <laughs> um but I started to see Not for this podcast. Okay. No. So I started to see actual shadows and um you know, ghosts and things like that. Um it really just not only changed my temperament, you know, but it changed actually things that I would see, like, you know, figures and, and demons and things like that. So
0: And there was nobody there to comfort you and say
1: no, because people, you know, they thought it was funny. Like they made jokes about it, and so.
0: And this would be different than a kid who was worried that there were ghosts, right? Correct. Right. Correct. Um, you can you give us some um, examples of the mental, physical, emotional abuse that that you were enduring, so we can um, so you can paint a picture, uh, right? For so
1: us. you know. If I didn't take a nap, for example, as a four-year-old, um, this you know my stepfather would come and he would literally pick me up, throw me over the bed, and beat me over my head, my neck, my back. And I wrote about this in my book, you know, until I had bruises. Like it wasn't just like a spanking right. or because this was back in the '80s, early '90s. You know, I guess when people still. Thought spankings were okay, but he would beat me, you know, and over my head too. And over, I mean, <sighs> that's that's definitely not alright. Yeah. You know, um, I remember I got called a whore. Like I remember one time, I was playing around in my mom's makeup, um, and he came in the room and saw me, and he's like, you know, take that off your face. So you look like a, a whore. You know. can swear here. Okay. By the way. He's yeah. like, you look like a fucking whore, and. I just remember feeling like so, you know, ugly, but ugly on on the on the deepest, darkest level, you know, Um, like I wanted to kill myself already as a kid.
0: If you could have said anything out loud, if you could have voiced it as a kid, what would you have said then if if you would found a space that was safe? To him? To anybody. Who would you have said it to? And what would you have said?
1: Well, I remember when that happened. I just looked at myself. I looked at my face in the mirror, and that's when I started to see like a monster, you know. And I just said, you know, you're a, you're a dumbass. And I don't even think I really even knew how to vocalize, um, because I was I was hurting, you know, and I was um, taking my feelings and stuffing it down with food. Um, so that's how I expressed. Mm-hmm. That's how I express my feelings.
0: Give us uh, a snapshot, a detailed snapshot, if you can, of how you would uh, numb yourself with food when you were... Your first memories of it.
1: Yeah, my first memories... um, It was very interesting because after I was um, sexually abused, I just remembered that, you know, all of a sudden the food started to... It, it had a different meaning to me, you know. How so? Instead of just, because I always liked food. You know, I loved my mom's cooking. My mom cooked homemade everything, and my Nana, too. Um, but I just wanted to eat a lot of food. And in the food, I remember I would like... Um, I, I felt fearful and ashamed all of a sudden around food, so I would wait until nobody was around, and I would open the refrigerator door and just stare at the food, and my heart would race wow, yeah, as a kid as an eight year old
0: so that was your first addiction that was yeah would absolutely. you say it it's comparable to the high when you would be later on acting out or getting drunk or, absolutely yeah. okay,
1: that same adrenaline rush, yeah, you know, and it's it's all of a sudden it was you know. I didn't want anyone to be around because I was thinking about food in a very different way, and like in a bad way, you know, because I knew I was going to do something with the food. So I remember, the, you know, cheese slices, how they're, you know, wrapped up in that. Mm-hmm. So I would take them and like play with them, and make little noises with them and little songs. <laughs> <laughs> At first it would seem very innocent, right? But, um, you know, I would start to steal the food and take it and go hide with it and just eat a lot of food you know, in a very short amount of time, which is binging. Mm-hmm. And then I think a couple of years later, that led to to purging the food. Um,
0: and did, was that something you came up with on your own, or had you learned about purging from somebody else?
1: I heard my mother purging, um, and I believe I heard some girls at school talking about it. But I'm pretty sure I got it from my, my you know, heard my mother doing it. And... That was the worst thing for me because once I started purging, I could not stop purging. I, you know, it became an enormous addiction for me, and I was doing it every single day.
0: Starting at what age?
1: Ten for fifteen years. <sighs> I mean, it was it got extremely out of control for me.
0: Give us a, a snapshot of it at its most out of control.
1: The most out of control. And in
0: what age? It yeah, most out of
1: I think the most out of control would be it eventually led to anorexia, but the most out of control in the bulimia was when I was modeling and um, I was so sick that, you know, I would purge more than 10 times a day. I would lock myself in my house, you know, I would faint from the vomiting, um, you know, I couldn't work anymore because everyone knew I had a problem. Um, But yet I would literally, I remember walking down the street in New York City, because that's where I lived at the time, and just thinking, all I could think about was that I needed to go get two extra large pizzas. But, you know, at the same time, it was like, no one's going to know. And this is all I care about. And getting the pizzas, you know, coming back to my apartment.
0: Heart beating.
1: Heart beating, heart racing, sweaty palms, you know, and eating it all as fast as I could. And then literally, at this time, because I had bleeding for so long, the corners of my lips were torn, but mm-hmm. I used to cover it up with makeup. You know, as an addict, you don't think about these things. Right. You know, th- vomiting in the toilet, and then having such a light head. Um, sometimes I would vomit blood. Wow. But to me, it I didn't notice that i didn't think about that because i've been doing it for so long and all i wanted to do was get it out
0: and at that point had you given any weight to what you had experienced as a child
1: I, it was like i i was so annoyed by what had happened to me as a kid and i was i would tell anyone about it in a heartbeat i think i was holding on to that anger mm-hmm. but i was not in a place at all where i was you know going to go to a recovery program or anything like that
0: so fair to say you hadn't grieved what you missed as a kid or experienced sat with the sadness of what yeah. you missed
1: no i was definitely numbing it trying to numb it yeah
0: do you think that that's for us that's kind of really what the distraction the addiction the addictive distraction is is to avoid the the sadness I do. I um, think so. Yeah.
1: Or or something else. You know, yeah, some I, something that's that we're not bringing up to light that we're not wanting to deal with. Yeah. I I think that that's that's what addiction is. Yeah. Okay.
0: Um, I, I talked with Nikki a little bit before we started rolling, uh, which I often do with guests uh, when they're survivors. Um, of of sexual abuse to uh, try to get a feel of what they're comfortable sharing and what they're not comfortable sharing, and uh, she has told me that she's an open book and willing to um, share absolutely and any and all uh, details pertinent to the 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 topic. Um, so, can you uh, talk about the the sexual abuse?
1: Absolutely. You know, I, my thing is we were talking about earlier is if something in my story can help someone else, then I'm all for that. You know, there's how many billions of people in the world, (laughs) you know, and I think every single one of us know what it's like to feel happiness, but also sadness and pain, uh, no matter where you come from. So, um, the sexual abuse, it was from a male figure. Um, but it also happened with my mother and, you know, i didn't even connect the dots with that you know we were talking earlier mm-hmm. um because it was my mother and you know our relationship was extremely complicated because she had mental health issues i had mental health issues and um but when it's when it's a female i don't know why but i think maybe because um in society we talk more about men mm-hmm. abusing which is a shame that you know we should so um, but she was taking care of me the best she could, but I guess I trusted her more because she was my mother, even though she she had mental health issues, and I was definitely aware of those um but um, there definitely was you know things that went on that were not right, and that started we were talking about earlier with the bathtub, you know, and there is nothing wrong with you know. I want to have a child one day, and I don't think there's anything wrong with taking a bath with your daughter. But, you know, when I think back about it, it was the way we were taking a bath together. And, you know, I work on the the board of Peaceful Hearts Foundation with Matthew Sandusky, so we educate about child sexual abuse, right? And there's a technique called grooming, Right, in the way, you know, you, you groom somebody, you get them um close to you so that you can prepare them for other abusive behavior. Um and it definitely was not appropriate, you know, some of the things that she was doing and that progressed to um one time taking me into the bathroom and taking my temperature, you know, um with her finger and, and putting, you know, things up my butt. I mean, that's, that was really, um, I don't, I've actually never even shared that.
0: Thank you. Thank you for sharing (laughs) that. Um, I've shared on the podcast, my, my mom took my temperature rectally till I was eight years old and, you know, kind of knew on a certain level something was wrong and wanted to know why we were still doing that way. And, you know, her, her whole demeanor would change when she would when she would do it. And I just, you know, kids pick up on, mm-hmm. on that. And, um, may
1: I may ask but, you, how would her, how would her, um, demeanor change? Because my mother's demeanor would change if she got um, like very excited or kind of aggressive, you know, it was,
0: her, hers would be the opposite. She would um, become very quiet. She would almost, uh, stop talking, uh, completely. She she's normally kind of a chatty uh, person and it would, um, almost like as if she was hyper focused and then she would, disappear with the thermometer after she took it out for what seemed like an inordinate amount of time. And I used to wonder what, what is she doing with the, with the thermometer? And, and then I would just banish the thought from my brain that you uh, it's your mom. She wouldn't do that. You know, she wouldn't do it. And, and it,
1: so you ate, did even at that age have some kind of awareness I of did, what, but I buried
0: mm-hmm. it then for the next 40 years. Mm-hmm. And, it wasn't until i looked at the pattern of a hole and and i don't i don't hate my mom i'm not even angry at my mom i i, I have empathy for her because i know um it was probably a, a mental issue or or or, is, or, or something or yeah. trauma that she experienced who knows maybe she was dissociating um yeah. i don't know and and that's not important to my recovery who want to know why she did it? Yes, I would love to know why she did it, but I'm not waiting for that answer to begin re- recovering. And I cut contact with her not because of what she did, just because it's not healthy uh, mm. for me. I don't feel safe around her, and that I've tried, and it it, it, it does not change. Mm. But uh, go ahead. So she um, was uh, she, using she, her yeah, uh, she, finger. Yeah,
1: there was that. There was that incident, and at the time, you know, I really. I was very uncomfortable, obviously, and um, but it wasn't until much later that I realized that that was not right.
0: And how old were you when that when that happened?
1: I was, I think, it was nine. Uh-huh. So I had already been, I had already been sexually abused by a male figure at that time, and then, um, you know, and then it happened with my mother. So I really felt unsafe. you I, know. I can't
0: imagine how unsafe you must have felt. And, and one other question. You talked about your mom grooming you. How did it start and how did it progress? If you can I recall. Would,
1: I would say that it started with the bathtub. But my mom, it was weird because my mom had bipolar. So it was just this odd relationship because sometimes she would be very loving with me a real loving and then sometimes she would act out and she also had this multiple personality. So,
0: and she was an alcoholic. Yes. Right?
1: Which progressed l- a little bit later. Okay. So at first it was just dealing with, you know, I never really knew, I guess the best I could say, I never really knew who I was dealing with.
0: <laughs> Boy, do I know that
1: really? You know, yeah. so if for, for, for my mental space, I just, I felt very confused a lot. And, um, but in my mind, I always kind of, I guess I chose the version of my mother, you know, that I wanted to see, right?
0: <laughs> I think which almost every incest survivor does, mm. because it's much less scary um, to blame yourself and say that you're dirty or you deserve it than to say, I'm in the care of somebody who is not safe mm. and there's nowhere to go.
1: mm and and that's and it's like a survival technique, yeah, you know, yeah, when that's you're a what kid.
0: My therapist and yeah. other therapists have have told me. Yeah. Um, so, um, I think it's important to distinguish uh, when it becomes inappropriate uh, bathing with your kid, and I'm sure it's different for each person because um, the vibe of it probably has everything uh, to do with it, and certainly I would think age is definitely a factor of, you know, the kids get to a certain age. The thing that I've heard most people share is once a child is old enough to wash themselves, mm-hmm. um, that's the, that should be the, the end of it. Right. Um, uh, and most people I think agree, you know, maybe five, six years old, maybe younger, um, uh, I I don't know. I'm I'm afraid to to get specific about what I think because I'm not a parent. Right. But um you know you were sharing with me earlier that you're you were taking baths with your mom until how old?
1: I think I I, I think of it's like 7, you know, mm-hmm. 8 or um but also it was just the the touching, you know, and
0: she would touch you while Yeah, you were... like she
1: would she would be behind me and she would cuddle with mm-hmm. me and you know just touch all over my body and I just felt like it was very inappropriate. Um
0: but like touching your genitals? Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that's inappropriate.
1: Yeah, you know.
0: At the time, what what did you think or feel in in that moment?
1: To be honest with you, I felt loved. Yeah. I tell you the truth. Because I um I and I don't know exactly why I felt that way, but it can be just because of the diversity of all the abuse that I went through. Maybe that was just normal for me. You know?
0: Well, I have female friends who experienced that same thing, and some of them have told me that that was their favorite time with their mom mm-hmm. was when they would take the baths mm-hmm. together because that's that was when she would be the most gentle yeah and the most complimentary mm-hmm. and the most uh, they felt the most safe and uh, many of them also um felt sexual pleasure uh from it mm-hmm. and didn't know that it was uh that it was inappropriate and, and, and what was really happening but did you did you experience uh sexual pleasure or was it just something that you weren't aware of
1: yeah i don't think i was i don't think i've got sexual pleasure from that i think from anything it was just like a um, comfort, mm-hmm. and I don't think I was, I was aware that, um that there was anything wrong there right. until much later, you know.
0: So she didn't have to justify it out loud to you, what was happening or why she was doing it?
1: No, it was more, you know, she would just call me names, like pet names, like, you know, my sweet little girl and all these kind of things. Um,
0: what do you, what do you, how do you react nowadays when somebody calls you a pet name do you have a a, like a do you want to recoil
1: i'd say one of my biggest challenges is um i know i i was um i'm recently going through divorce right now actually to a very wonderful loving person it was a very healing loving relationship so i'd say one of my biggest challenges has been able to let love in you know and (laughs) You know, and she those were loving words she was she was saying. Those yeah. were healthy words, um, but what she was doing was not healthy, right? Or loving. Or loving. So there's a deep, deeply rooted subconscious sort of you know correlation between saying healthy things, but but treating me unhealthy. So it's been a challenge to to try to re- rewire that in my brain you know and and try to change behaviors um and i think i will always have to you know to do that do
0: you feel when somebody is looking at you with love um you know a man in your life do you feel revulsion or disgust sometimes when they are fully present and loving you what what emotions come up that that make the struggle difficult mm. anger the
1: thing is, is that i really want if you ask me i really would love in my heart to have a loving committed lifelong marriage i mean i i, I do i want that more than anything i would love to have a family you know the dog and everything like that mm. i do and i've i've been trying and, and working on that to change behaviors in myself. Right. Um, but it hasn't been easy. Like my dad and I, we have a good relationship. And when he looks at me with love in his eyes, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard. Cause and i I'm, as a woman, I'm kind of aggressive. You know, I'm like, I don't need anyone to take care of me. I can do everything myself. And like, you know, I think I don't need, a, I don't want to get married again. I, I can just raise a, a daughter on my own. I have plans to adopt. And I, it's, I think it all goes back to that, to what happened, you know. Mm-hmm. When my ex-husband would look at me with love, it helped me, you know, a lot. But yet there were still those deep, re-wi- you know, the the wiring there of, um, it was aggravating, you know, because yeah. it was like, I don't it, I liked it. It helped me to heal, actually, with my eating disorders and all of this stuff. But there was a disconnect, you know. Mm. And I, I think I found um, a lot of excuses for me to get out of that relationship. You know, I, I just it, it's it's very difficult. It I'm telling it's you, trauma. Difficult. It it. Whoever is listening be good to your kids because it completely can screw you up for the rest of your life.
0: Especially around intimacy and trust.
1: Yes. Yeah. And and trust, you know, and, and I think with me, I, I can learn to trust people, but I think it comes off as being, um, I, I'm a super independent. I don't need anyone, but probably at the core root, um, of that and i'm only admitting this because i'm (laughs) wondering but at the core root of that it's because i i don't trust people Mm -hmm. yet i do have this fear of being abandoned
0: (laughs) you are the female me (laughs) i swear to god so so much of what you have described is is me to uh a t and it's very comforting it's it's really comforting um talk about um when you first noticed depression coming in and anxiety,
1: I actually didn't even know that I had what you would call depression until, until a psychiatrist diagnosed me with depression. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Until he actually put a label on it, which is like, then I was like, oh my god, I have depression. Is that why I've been sad? Is that <laughs> why? Like, because I didn't know. I just thought I it's, was sad,
0: it's a, and it's our normal.
1: Yeah, I just thought I was sad, and I just thought I was anxious, but I didn't know that it was like that, you know, clinical thing. So, but um, but I, well, I was really sad from early on because you know when you're when you get beat up by your caretakers, it makes you really sad, you know. So I would, I guess I was when I was a kid, so because I would like go hide in my room and draw. I was one of those kids, you know, that was like super introverted and would just read and write and paint those kind of things
0: what were what were some of your fantasies as a kid you know the, the the land that you would escape to in your in your brain
1: i used to always i don't know i don't know where i got this from oh but here we go with the sexualizing because this always went to a sexual so this is what happened so i would always um draw like this medieval <laughs> I, don't know where this got, I think i got it from watching the little mermaid because this was when the little mermaid came so I would like always draw the same scene of, you know, um, being in a castle and these kind of things. This is when Disney was really popular you know, or something like this. And that's where I would escape to in my head. I was like, I'm just going to be a princess. This was Disney's fault. I swear, you know, like putting princess fantasies into every little girl's brain. But then sometimes, you know, it would turn into a sexual fantasy of like eight years old, you know. Which is directly related to, you know, I know that working with Peaceful Hearts, that a lot of times survivors, you know, kids, you can tell if they've been abused because of what they'll draw. So a Mm -hmm. lot of times their drawings will be, it'll play out sexually, you know. But it it was like always someone rescuing me, but then we'd have a sexual. (laughs) I was way too advanced for a child, you know. I I somehow I knew all about sex you know at 8 years old well I know why I knew all about sex at 8 years old Um, but and I know children even children who haven't been exposed to trauma they can they can become aroused at very young but um, I believe it was because of the trauma you know Um, and why was I thinking about sex and wanting to be in love and all this stuff at 8 years old I shouldn't have been thinking about that
0: uh, so, so would it be fair to say that it was it, it was um, things that you had experienced, things that had been done to you? Um, it was just kind of you um, extrapolating that into a land that was safe uh, for you where someone would come and take you away someone from all of Someone was
1: rescuing me. And so I think, yeah, and I think it also had a lot to do with wanting to, f- to feel loved, really. I think the sexual part played out because of the trauma, but I think the core of it was wanting to feel loved and accepted because I didn't feel like I had any love mm. or acceptance right yeah I was and I think that's part of the depression too you know just developing there because I didn't feel that I had anyone to help me you know and I felt very very alone so I thought in my, probably because of the Disney movies I thought you know well if I just had a someone to sweep me off my feet then everything will be okay right Um, but it doesn't work that way <laughs> doesn't work that way. Sorry, girls. <laughs> There's a, a lot of women still think that way, but um, definitely doesn't work that way. There has to be a balance there. You know, it can not be, I, I think, if you're too independent too, which speaks for my own self, it doesn't, you won't be happy, you know.
0: And, and I think it's important, this is just my opinion, but I think it's important to separate financial and professional independence from emotional connection that every human needs. You know, to say I don't need somebody. Yeah, you, you know, you don't need somebody to be financially successful. I think that's a great attitude right. to have. But to say, I don't need intimacy or contact or connection because I'm strong. To me, that says, nope, you're scared of being of being vulnerable. And and I'm not making a moral judgment on that. I'm just right. saying it, you are not weak for wanting to have intimacy and to be loved.
1: Yeah, I think... Yeah, it's taken me a long time to really realize that. I think that I feel weak if I admit that I want to be loved.
0: That's strength to me. That's like yeah. owning that. Yeah. That's I think one of the st- fucking you know that's like putting the flag in the yeah in the ground and saying yes, I am worthy of love. Exactly, I am worthy of yeah. intimacy.
1: And and that's something I've been learning and learning how to own for the past couple of years, you know, um, especially as I've been working particularly through the sexual abuse aspect, you know, um, and also surprisingly working through the eating disorder recovery, because it's part of owning your body, you know, and learning that you are worthy, you're worthy of love. Um, but definitely before it was just, and it was all a front to, to not want to be hurt. Mm-hmm. Right. But i I know that I'm, Definitely worthy of love um and I know that I want to be loved, but i I also know that I'm very careful about wanting to make sure that it comes from the right place mm-hmm. you know um that it comes from a healthy balanced place, you know because f- from someone who's a sex addict um, I have a tendency to just i'm like 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 we were saying earlier just i'm either feel nothing or i'm all the way over here so i'm like oh i love you you know i want to be with you but i don't really love you you know so i it's just exciting it's exciting you know so i have to make sure that before i ever get in a relationship again that i'm coming from that i'm healthy Mm -hmm. that i'm in a good place
0: and you're not looking for that person to fill you no you know there's a difference between connecting and and sharing yeah um but also having lives that are full and rich outside, yeah. outside of of that. So there's something to give, as opposed to, you know, I just need to siphon all of your yeah. energy to yeah. fill my to fill my tank. And and how do you differentiate between the two? I I would be a psychologist if I knew the the answer to that. I just kn- know that there is a, a difference between uh, the two. I don't know how to express what that difference looks like
1: well you know i think it's just a matter of what i've been learning it's a matter of just constantly working on myself and knowing that that person is going to be a compliment to me you know um and a lot of it is just because i I still see my psychiatrist who's in new york and we have skype sessions so it's like i think you're going to be okay because as long as you are working on being very Mm self-aware and thinking about everything before you do it, you know, assessing and that's really is so that's, important in relationships assessing is this going to be a good relationship for me even on dates, you know. Um rather that, than just going on a dates just because it's fun and it feels good. Right. Um
0: and it would be fair to say too thinking about it in a way that is self-reflective and non-obsessive as opposed yes. to just completely lost in self and um, and ruminating yes. about things.
1: Yes. Yes, exactly. Um so Doing things out of um, taking actions and making choices be, out of self-love, you know, because also if you decide to go in a relationship, you know, it's a big step. So you're bringing that person into your world and every decision that you make is going to affect that person. So just being self-aware is one of the best things you can ever do.
0: You and, know? and I think being a seeker. Just always saying, uh, you know, it, I'm open to yeah. anything that can help me yeah. um, love myself more and yeah. treat my fellow man uh, better.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it's that constant self-aware and constantly wanting to grow and to learn, yeah. right? Yeah. Which makes you a better person. So I think as long as you do that, you can't go wrong. Yeah. Um,
0: and go easy on yourself when you make mistakes yeah set, absolutely said the the kettle to the pot absolutely yeah <laughs>
1: nobody is we all know this perfect doesn't exist you know and when you fall down which you will and if you fall down a thousand times it's okay you just get back up and keep on going you know mm-hmm. yeah It's no judgment
0: so let's go to your um what uh Next snapshot, um, I think where we left off, you were nine or so, mm-hmm. and your mom had taken your rear temperature with her mm-hmm.
1: uh, think, Their finger. Finger, yeah. <laughs> So
0: that's such a hard sentence to say. I know it is such a hard sentence to say.
1: Um, I don't know that's that's how it was when I was writing my book. It's like let's go to scene, you know? Yeah. Let's go to the scene. I'm oh, sorry when you, yeah. when you you know were sexually abused by your mom. It's like oh my god. Okay. Um, so yeah, that happened. And really after that happened, it just obviously it changed the way that I perceived myself, you know, in relation to the world. And I, I felt like, God, how do I, you know, hang around my mom now? What do I do? You know, but, um,
0: because at that point you knew this, this is not right. What you just did. I knew did. it
1: wasn't right, but if. I really was so confused. I didn't... I think I was just the type of person that just kind of coasted on through, you know?
0: Just kind of brushed it aside. well, that was weird, but I'm just going to brush it aside. Yeah,
1: I, I thought it was weird, but I just brushed it aside because I was in the care of my mom, and I didn't... Again, I saw the version that I wanted to see, right? The other weird thing was that i was writing about i don't know if anyone out there is going to understand this but at the same time i started to see um do you are you aware of what a spirit doppelganger is
0: uh it sounds familiar
1: (laughs) this is like getting into the weird but there is an actual mental illness component to this Mm -hmm. um because what happens is so i studied this sometimes when there's trauma people have actually seen ghosts or they've seen, um, a premonition of their loved one or themselves. And they say it has come to warn you of someone's impending death. So I actually, my mom and I both saw, which is really freaky, the same, um, I guess, mirror image of her in the house we were living in. And it was like a really evil spirit. Mm -hmm. So I saw this for a long time growing up. Um, so this was all going on. And
0: and you knew that that spirit represented your mom?
1: It looked exactly like my mother. Okay. And,
0: and to describe physically what the spirit looked like.
1: So I was, you know, I was like being haunted by this spirit that looked exactly like my mother, but it was like an evil face. And it was like would it sticking move? its tongue out at me.
0: Okay. And would it move? Would it always appear yeah, in the same was like place? Yeah, it like
1: different place in the house. It would just appear.
0: Full body or just face? A head. Just a head. Freaky, yeah. yeah.
1: head. <laughs> it's not something you want to see. You don't just want to be up brushing your teeth in the morning and you see that. <laughs> Here's
0: a really important question. Hair and curlers?
1: No, oh, no. Stop. <laughs> no. And my mom. So a
0: put-together ghost. put-together ghost. I don't know what no, your problem but is. No, like, it was
1: like, it was, you know, it had one of those. So my mom was very beautiful. First of all, she was a Spanish, mm-hmm. but she had long black hair. And the guy kind of pale skinned. So this ghost was, you know, exactly like that, but it was making a really nasty face. So just imagine mm. if you see a ghost yeah. sticking his tongue. up. So I didn't know at the time that it was the spirit doppelganger or whatever that was. Actually, it's very, um, very, some very famous people in history. There have been documented cases like Abraham Lincoln. He saw one of those, um,
0: and was it a premonition of his death, supposedly, or what? Supposedly, yes. Yeah.
1: So that's how... So when I started to research my book, that's how I learned about that. Because um, I didn't know that... I had no idea at the time this was what was going on. Um So anyways, this was going on at the same time, and I literally felt crazy because I had, you know, trauma. I had... My mother had her own mental health issues with her bipolar and all this other stuff going on. And... um I just wanted to get out of my house, you know. I, I didn't want to live there with him. I wanted to go live with my dad. And seeing ghosts on top of it, I thought, what is wrong with me, you know, really? Um, so the abuse just kept going on and on and on. And my eating disorder kept getting worse. Um, and it just it just kept living, you know, I just kept living that way. Until I was um, thirteen, and when I was thirteen, it got to a, a really bad point. I would say with the abuse, um, my which, mom's.
0: Which which of the abuses?
1: All of it. All I mean, of it. it was pretty much. I lived a life where every day I didn't know what was going to happen to me. Because my stepfather was the kind of person. Um he had a very volatile, you know, he was he was like the um it's a Dr Jekyll Mr Hyde mm-hmm. that type of personality, you know. So something would set him off and he would flip on a switch. And unfortunately, I was the person he chose to take out, you know. Yeah. And my mom too. I mean, he really there was a whole domestic violence situation going on. But the thing was is that we had a very nice house, you know. He worked hard he made good money for, you know, what we had. We went to a I went to a private school with my brother. Um and and it was a private Christian Southern Baptist school. So there was this whole kind of um you know, mask that we wore mm. and no one really understood or would have believed anything that was going on. They wouldn't have believed anything. Um and I wasn't about to say anything because I was a kid you know, scared. Well, when I was 13, we got the computer. And um, I think it it really just, it was like another level for my mom's, um, her illness to kind of, you know, manifest. And um, I don't know what happened then. But there was like boys coming over to our house, you know, even like I had a kind of a boyfriend at the time and one of his friends was coming over to our house, you know, from the Christian school. Can you Mm -hmm. imagine? I mean, this was like, um,
0: one of your boyfriend's friends was having sex with your mom.
1: Yeah. So, and the thing, the weird thing about it was, so
0: he would have been like, what, 14? fourteen
1: No, no, w- um, no. Let me just preface this for a minute, Sorry. So, when I was about thirteen, I had an older boyfriend who was like I seventeen, see. I and see. it was his friend. So he was either seventeen or eighteen. I don't know. Um, but he wasn't any younger than that. Okay. So this, so my mom got the computer, and all of a sudden, like boys were coming over, and you know, college age boys too, when I was at school, and then. They were making jokes about it. Like my mom and my stepdad were making jokes about it, you know, and my mom thought it was funny. But when I say that she thought it was funny, you have to understand that, you know, obviously we know when we have a mental illness, it's really our mental illness. That's the one talking. And that's what's so hard to understand with loved ones, right? Even with ourselves, you know, because it's like, is it really me talking, you know, or doing the behaviors or is it? That thing
0: and it, and it is so convincing and it is so smart. Um, it it it's the most ruthless prosecuting attorney.
1: Yeah, that's a great way. For yeah. it, you know,
0: the voice of addiction, the voice of depression, the voice of anxiety, the voice of of, of all of those things, and I, that's why I we need help. We need a defense team.
1: Yeah. And there wasn't any defense team, you know, and my mom had dissociative identity, which means she had these other personalities that would come out. She had one that had a name, you know, whenever her sexual side would come out, you know, and it was, it was Betty. (laughs) That was her name,
0: you know. Would she call herself Betty?
1: Yeah, sometimes. But it was just like her total personality would change. Like she would talk in a different voice. She would dress differently, you know, and she would just get like really hyper excited and she would walk around the house naked. She would, you know, that's so that's when the computer came out and she, you know, would like she would show me herself masturbating, you know, on the computer and like all of these things went on in the house. And so when Betty came out, she was like really hypersexual, you know, and she did dangerous things dangerous sexual things like you know she had boys over she you know did things that definitely were not in the healthy state of mind um was
0: was betty the the personality who was present when your mom was doing stuff to you
1: i don't know okay i i know that i i definitely noticed it because i think because i was so little at that time but i definitely know that i noticed more of that as i was old you know as i got older um it, when when we got the computer that's when she you know was like hey come in here i want to show you what i'm doing because i noticed that when we got the computer she would like stay in her room for a long period of time you know so my brother and i would be at school my nana would pick us up from school and bring us back home and i was like uh,
0: nana being your grandmother
1: my adopt because my mom was adopted, so it was our adopted grandmother, and she was in there for so long um, and finally, I realized what she was doing because she she showed me, and she was in her one of her other personalities, you know her voice was different, she was either naked or she was in a robe, and she was just show me you know um and it's so weird because at the time. I knew that wasn't right, but even at the time I don't maybe I was so shocked that I didn't even react very much. Maybe that's what it was, you know. But I didn't act very shocked, I don't know.
0: Well, you know, if you think about it, this didn't come out of nowhere.
1: So yeah, I, so
0: it it's understandable that it wasn't that shocking, that you could register that this isn't right. But also, it's like just another bomb in a war. <laughs>
1: yeah, it was like a war ground. Yeah. yeah it's literally, it was like a war ground, everyday trying to, so,
0: so was she m- masturbating in front of you?
1: Yes. I have a very clear memory of seeing my mom in her silky robe and masturbating. And that really messed me up, you know.
0: Many of my female friends experienced so many of the things that you have described. Really, to a T, mm. to a T. The, the masturbating, uh, walking around the house naked, uh, the inappropriate baths. Yeah, it's. Um,
1: and then the walking around the house naked, you know, because I know a lot of, I guess, hippie type people, and they're like, "Oh, well, that's normal," you know, walking around. But honest to God, I mean.
0: There's a vibe to it. When it's, I would
1: not walk around the house. When I have a child, I would never do that. I don't find that appropriate. You know, I just don't find that appropriate.
0: And almost all of the people who experience that as kids that I've talked to, they, to a one, almost always say that they expressed their discomfort to the parent, and then the parent told them that they were the one. That had the problem. That to me is when the abuse begins. If you say, you know, when you're seven or eight, you know, because there there might be a parent that's not aware of that. Mm. But if the kid says, you know, Mom, put some clothes on. Yeah, put some clothes on, and okay, you've 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 moved on. You know, that's to me like a mistake that's okay. And but when you tell that kid, I'm your mom. You know, I whatever it is that they. Say to to justify it that that to me is when there's no longer a gray area and it's straight up.
1: Yeah, I, I remember I would you know I would say things it's like, you know, what are you talking about? Like you know, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with this, or what's wrong with you? You know that sort of thing. Yeah. But everything was always like a joke, or you know, mm-hmm. what's wrong with you? What do you mean? What's wrong? Why are you with me? so
0: uptight? Uh, yeah. I'm
1: a kid. What do you mean? It's like what do you mean? So. So I always question myself, you know, or that man, that that phrase, "What's wrong with you?" always mm. replayed in my head. What's mm. wrong with me, right? What's wrong with
0: me? Yeah. Um, I I hope this isn't an inappropriate question, um, but when you your mom was uh, again, this is a difficult sentence. When your mom was masturbating in front of you, what seemed to be the payoff? for her? Was it gauging your reaction or was she looking at the computer gauging the reaction of the person that she was doing it? Was she doing it for somebody on the other end of the computer or do you not remember?
1: Mm. I the memory I have of that is just I remember because I think what happened is I walked in on her masturbating and then she just kept doing it um, you know, and I believe she did it again. Cause as you know, with memories like that, it's like kind of just, it's trauma, you know, so yeah. you have, um, but she, you know, it, it, what I can tell you is that it got to a point where she wanted me to stay in the room, you know, when she was talking because she was talking to men online she was chatting to men online so it got to a point where she wanted me to stay in the room when she was doing that and then it got to the point where um you know she wanted me to um stay near her you know sit next to her when she was doing that wow so um
0: i'm so sorry that is so sad no it's so sad
1: it's okay uh, thank you. Um, but I don't really remember why. Like, I just don't remember, you know, the details, details of that. I just remember that, you know. And I, rem- and so what I remember is that, you know, it got to this weird point where she would, um, like, it was always funny for her or some for some reason, where she would pinch my breasts, you know, in that room, because everything started in that bedroom with the computer, and so, and she would like, um, laugh about it, and then touch my, you know, my breasts, and I was 13, so they were developing, and she did it a lot, like a lot, and then um, I thought nothing of that, because it was, again, it's so weird, you know, because it was my mom, so I just didn't think anything of that that my, was inappropriate
0: my, my mom would do that uh, my, and my mom never did anything uh, you know like par- paid, parading around naked or touching my genitals but she would uh, very often grab my butt you know and tell me how you know cute I was and uh, until I made her stop at like 25 years old but it never even occurred to me yeah. that that was inappropriate it's that she was talking to Sorry. me like a like a spouse or a boyfriend and I know yeah. that wasn't her intent but it just always made me sick and i just buried it because she always kind of got what she wanted because mm. otherwise she would wear me down mm. making me turning it around on me as if i was the one with the problem as if i was too sensitive or mm. or whatever mm. um, but go ahead
1: yeah my mom and even even up until um a few years ago she would she, i know my mom would grab my butt or it she would, like, poke me in the armpit, you know, or underarm, or she would still, there was still something where she would kind of do it, but still grab my breast a little bit, or she would kiss me on the mouth, you know. And I still, because I've only been in, so, you know, I went to recovery four years ago, so it's taken me a long time to realize that that was inappropriate. And I was, sh- again, I, I was shocked because, because even though my, m- my mom and I had a very – we had a bad relationship, um, I still love my mom, you know, because she's my mother. Yeah. And so I still didn't I, – I I, didn't understand any of that.
0: When you say you went to uh, recovery, you talking about like just uh, support groups or did you go to a center for trauma or
1: um, – Well, I I define that moment as when, well, I've been sober for five years Mm -hmm. and free from eating disorder for three and a half, but I define that moment as when actually my mom passed away and I made the decision, um, to leave my modeling career. And I went, I started by, when I left my career, I started by, um, going through home care, I would say, because I was so sick. I mean, I was like, I weighed less than 90 pounds at that time. I was wow. had anorexia and everything. But I couldn't afford because as an addict, I was like blowing all of my money on you know, everything, binging, purging, everything. Um, that relationship that I was in with so my, you know, husband was very healthy and helpful and they helped me um, you know, kind of get better. But I had a I got a mentor online, you know, I went through a 12 step program. Um, I did see a psychiatrist, therapist, basically everything that I could to get better. Mm-hmm. Because going to an uh, inpatient can cost up to $30,000 a month for eating disorder treatment. It's very expensive. Very expensive. And a lot of times, even when you have insurance, they will cover it like little spurts, you know, mm-hmm. like maybe two, three days. I don't, I don't know. It just depends on your insurance. So the problem is that when you're an addict, you if you make a lot of money, which there were times that I did, I spent it really quick, you know, and usually on destroying myself. Um, So when it came time to get better, I had to look at other options. And if I didn't, I was going to die. I mean, I was in a very, very, very bad shape.
0: When you were at your lightest, were you still hireable in the modeling industry?
1: (laughs) I was the most hireable. Yeah, that is... The most. The the thinner I was, the thinner I was, the more they wanted to hire me. Actually, it was so weird because... So I've modeled everywhere, right? Like, I've lived in New York, L.A., Miami. I've lived in the Middle East. I've worked there in Paris, everywhere. right? When I... I remember specifically in Paris, it was funny because when I went there, nobody wanted to hire me. Um, I was... I mean, now I'm like I don't know. I hate to talk about size on the radio because it can trigger people. But let's just say I was a healthy size, mm-hmm. and um, nobody wanted me, and um, I, I was depressed. I was throwing up every day, you know. Um, so when I went to Spain, I lived there for about a year, and I became anorexic, and um, I lost probably you know I lost a lot of weight, so. I, I lost so much weight I was so sick that my agency in Paris you know they started to take pictures of me in Spain started to work a lot and I looked like a completely different person you wouldn't have even recognized me so my agency in Paris said who is this girl we want her and they said that's Nikki they said that's not Nikki um, yeah, that's a whole different you know topic right there. But but that wow. was basically and wow. that but that was my experience everywhere. You know,
0: and uh, just to uh, <laughs> to give uh, the the listeners uh, a sense of uh, things that you you were on the cover of, just give me uh, some some magazines or I was on, on the cover
1: of Maxim. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been in Glamour and Vogue and Vanity Fair. Okay, um, you know all these kind of things.
0: Okay. Uh, what's the next, um, part of your life that you would like to talk about or the next subject?
1: Well, I think it's important to say, you know, after, after all the abuse and everything, I was removed by the police and to go to, that's important because I, I felt after that, like I didn't have an identity, you know, Mm -hmm. like I didn't know what to do with myself. Um, And you would have been how old at this point? 13. And I also changed schools. And we know that, you know, kids going to school, it's also, I mean, it's a traumatic for any kid. But when you feel broken, it was really bad. So I, to cope, I started to, this is not right, this is not okay, but I started to use drugs really young. I started to drink. Um, actually I had my first drink when I was three years old. I just (laughs) want to say this. I'm not making that up. So what happened is my mother thought it was funny to give me a drink at three. Like again, the funny thing, right? Yeah. This is something to be very aware of funny, um, to make jokes of things. So I had my first drink when I was three and then I went to the bar at 13. When I when I changed schools, I wanted to feel accepted, right? I was going back to this whole wanting to be accepted and loved. However, using drugs, alcohol, sex is not the right way to feel accepted and loved, but I thought it was. Um, So I started to try to fit in with the popular kids, but really inside, I felt like a monster. You know, I had BDD. I don't know if you're familiar with what BDD is. Body dysmorphic disorder. Yeah. So I have that. Um, And I was like always changing my appearance. Like I would spend hours, you know, in the bathroom trying to change my hair, putting tanning cream on and changing my hair color. Um, Just trying to fit in, you know, and then at school, I felt like a loser. I felt so bad about myself, you know, and I would cry all the time. And so when I finally got invited to go party i thought oh my god yes i made it <laughs> mm-hmm. successful you know like that was successful to me because somebody finally wanted me to be there with them and nobody had ever wanted me to be there with them you know
0: that's so heartbreaking
1: but it's the truth yeah you know it's the truth and so i i dressed up i started to dress sexier hmm like I did when I would go out with my mom to bars, you know. And I
0: love, too, that we just glossed over that, that your mom was taking you to bars at 13. We're like, yeah, oh, okay, and what's the next thing that happened? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's...
1: Um, but so I I would... in where my dad lived, he lived in the country. He was, like, in the total opposite of where my mom lived. When my mom lived in the city, the nicer part, my dad was just, like, a country... He's sweet. We we lived in the country, so with the way they partied, is they would go um, in the woods and they would just like party with their trucks and coolers. So I was started to already try. Can you say names of drugs here? Yeah. 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 No, that's fine. So I was doing acid already. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, smoking weed and everything like that. And but when I started to drink. I didn't just drink. I, and I guess this is, you know, genetic, environmental, I wanted to be the best. Right? I saw it mm-hmm. as competition.
0: I wanted to impress.
1: Yeah, I wanted to impress and i wanted to go all the way i wanted to black out like yeah. i knew that for some reason already
0: for your sake or for the the, the the to impress the other people i don't know i guess it was
1: like a combination of both but yeah. i just knew that i couldn't leave that party that first time i couldn't leave there without without blacking out i i, I needed to i needed to feel the ultimate high you know mm-hmm. i thought everything else was just not important it was like a baby baby thing yeah. you know um and so i did black out and then every time i drank after that i blacked out um and i hung out with those those you know cool kids for a while but after a while they started to get annoyed with me because what i would do is i would steal food and i would purge it right my this girl i would hang out with a lot she was a very popular girl and i would so my addiction was showing up in my friendships so i would steal it i would purge it and i was drinking a lot you know a lot more than what even they were um but inside i was feeling like i wanted to kill myself you know Mm. um and at the same time at this time my mother we weren't really talking that much and she tried to commit suicide so she was admitted to Um, a mental facility.
0: Were you there when she tried to commit suicide?
1: No, because I was living with my dad. Oh, okay. Um, So she had...
0: Full-time or temporarily with your dad?
1: Full-time, because I had... It was a police order, so I wasn't allowed... you had been
0: removed from the home, but not for the sexual stuff, for physical and and emotional abuse, correct? Right,
1: right. Um, So she tried to commit suicide, and she tried to commit suicide twice. So... You know that was really, it was really hard for that, and I think to deal with that, I just kept, I spiraled, you know, on with the addiction, the 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 drugs, the alcohol. Um, Did
0: you blame yourself for, or or feel like you contributed to it? I don't know what
1: I felt. You know, it was just, it was almost kind of like living in a dream world, um, because it was so unreal. You know and I just remember visiting her in the mental institution and just seeing her with the bandages on her arm and thinking, "You know, who is this person that that's it the other thing is I never really felt like I knew who she was, right um, and feeling so sad about that and lost because at that particular time, I felt like um I felt like, God, why can't I just have a mom you know." why can't I just, why can't I just have my mom? I really just want to have my mother. You know, I remembered when I was like four years old, we used to go to trips to Disney World and we had this few special moments where we would bond and it was, there was no more of that, you know? So it was really, um, it was really just hard. And I think I, it just further concreted the fact that you're not gonna have your mom. You're not gonna have this. You're not gonna have your caretakers. You know, you have your dad, and you're gonna have to work really hard in that relationship with your dad. And you're gonna have to. You're you're on your own. You know, it, you're on your own, and this is how it is. Um, but then she, you know, she she got a bit better.
0: Can Can we just back up for a second? Mm-hmm. Do you remember what and just. To add another parallel between our stories, my dad tried to kill himself by slitting his wrist when uh, I think I was like 29, Um, but he he survived. Um, uh, Do you remember your mom's demeanor, how she looked at you and what she said to you when you visited her in the hospital?
1: She was, the other thing was that she was so out of it, you know. I, I do remember one thing I wrote was that she was, when I saw her, um, because the first time she tried to commit suicide, she um, she wrote a note to my brother and I, and she tried to overdose. But the second time, she tried to kill herself with, you know, a knife. And that was, like, it was really hard. So I think when I saw her in the facility um, she looked like a little girl, you know, because everything was white in there. I remember that. And, um, I just looked at her and she just looked so small in the bed. Right. And that's when I felt like so much bigger than her in many ways, right. Bigger than her. And she was just out of it. And I didn't know what personality was coming through, if it was her, you know, if it was her because she had been through trauma or if it was, you know, who it was. But to me, she just looked like a little girl. And um, I it made me feel lost very all over again, right? Like, it was like I was constantly feeling lost all the time. And I just wanted so badly to have... Um, my mom, you know, like a, my mom to take care of me. Um, but when she looked at me and I saw that she was lost too, I felt like I died inside, you know. And I had always felt that way. So I didn't know what to do with myself, <laughs> you know. So I, I think I dealt with that by just, was very good at creating identities for myself and masks and just learning how to shut up and go through, you know, and, and dealing with that by probably coping, you know,
0: it's probably too why intimacy is so hard for you because you're so used to just shutting down to protect yourself.
1: Yeah. I didn't really think about it in that particular way until you just said that, but for sure. I mean, I've thought about it in different ways, but not in that same way, you know, um, I mean, I'm a very warm person. I'm very warm, and I'm very good at connecting with people and helping people recover mm. from things. But, but yeah, that's those are hard things, yeah. you know, for many people to go through uh, traumas like that.
0: Yeah, I, I gotta say, you know, I hear a lot of stuff on this podcast, Nikki, but yours is one of the most intense stories I've I've heard in in five years of of doing this podcast, mm. and and we're not even nearly through all the stuff that mm. that that you've experienced.
1: Mm. Yeah, and I I know cuz I feel it because you're about to cry and I don't even have the tears coming, you know? It's it's like it's been really shut, you know? It's been really shut, but um but it it does sometimes it does come out, you know, tear, like it'll just be random when I'll start crying, you know.
0: Can you remember the last time and what it was about?
1: It was like, actually, I think it was yesterday, the day before. And I, because I think this is the holidays, you know, and I was watching, I was watching this. Um, you know, those like those classic Christmas movies with like the rain, Rudolph the Red News Reindeer. Mm-hmm. So I thought about my mom and, you know, um, and then I just started crying. But, But it has, people have really called me, the cold, some, you know, sometimes the coldest person they've ever met. But I have sympathy for people like that because we have to really understand, you know, we have to really. I even have sympathy for people that murder people because we have to really look back at people's lives and understand where we've all come from. You know, um, there's a reason why people are the way they are. There's a reason, there was a reason why my mother was the way she was. There was a reason why my stepfather, you know, um, I don't like, I trust me, I don't like not being able to be, in fact, I hate the fact that I'm not able to be intimate. Do you think I like the fact that I'm divorced twice? <laughs> I'm 31 years old. Like, for me, actually, I even hate saying that, right? Because it's probably one of the most shameful things. That you've been divorced
0: twice. At 31, yeah. yeah.
1: I, like, do you think that was my childhood dream? <sighs> No, you know, I, I, for me, it, it actually breaks my heart. Like that'll make me cry more than anything. That breaks my heart because I, especially, I mean, and I don't know how that different that is for men and women, but I think especially for women, we really, we grow up wanting to have happy, healthy family. And I'm like, my God, what's wrong with me? You know, that makes me feel like something's really wrong with me.
0: I hear that, too, from moms who experienced um, postpartum depression, you know, where they just feel no connection to their baby and they don't want to be alive. And they go into a spiral of such safe self-hatred and doubt, which then makes the depression even even worse. And it's funny when we should be the most compassionate to ourselves is when we bring the hammer down the hardest.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm, Yeah.
0: And I think that's why support groups are so important. because
1: So important. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Which I know I should be, and I'm openly saying this, I need to go, I I really need to go into the um, sexual addiction support groups, because that's going to really help me. You know, as much as I've been recently been open about saying that, you know, that's one of my biggest challenges, I've been good about the drug recovery and the alcohol recovery Mm. and the eating disorder, but that's that's gonna be my biggest challenge you know is is having that open support and it's like i'll think about it and it's just like i can deal with that later you know (laughs) it's Mm -hmm. that thing you know i can deal with that later why aren't you dealing with that right now why don't you just take an hour of your time and go to a support group at night when you're doing whatever i don't know what you're doing but why don't you just do that um because because the best thing you can ever do is take an hour of your time or whatever and take care of yourself and the mm-hmm. things you're not dealing with, yep. whatever that is you're struggling with. So I, right now I'm making that commitment that I'm going to do that. So thank you for that, because I really need to take care of that.
0: Um, my life improved the day I said, I have a problem with this. You know, I, I can't kid myself anymore. Um, I can't control how long I'm going to watch pornography for when I sit down to watch it. And I don't want to waste any more nights hating myself, you know, um, and just feeling like a failure and a loser. And it's not a a, a moral uh, judgment on pornography. It's that I know my life is not meant to be sitting in front of a computer for eight hours at a time looking for the next thing that's going to jolt me into feeling something instead of numbness and dread. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you're comfortable talking about it, what does your sex addiction look like? How does it express itself?
1: I think it's, I think it takes the form of um, sex and love.
0: Using sex to, to, Uh, unavailable people emotionally unavailable people or or how
1: I would I'd say that I just I get very um, I I fantasize you know and I think that um, I I'm not living in the reality in that way you know that I'm not I think it's hindering me from from being able to move forward and build possibly a healthy relationship I, I just, I'm not quite sure how to verbalize it, but I think... Um,
0: well, for, if you can, give me a specific um, fantasy that you've had about um, whatever it is that, that your uh, addiction is longing for.
1: Um, well, I'm not sure. I just, um, I think that I definitely know that I am... Will obsess over. So, for example, I will obsess over people I've never even met. You know, I will fantasize about them.
0: Yeah, picture your your life together. What?
1: Yeah, and 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 that's I feel so. Let me be very open about this. So, I feel very ashamed to say that, but I know that's not shameful because I understand where that comes from, and and that is a part of. Isn't there a name for that? That's like um, Iran, That's something. Iranomania. Nobody think that's. I know there's a term for that, but I know where that comes from, and I know I don't have to be ashamed for that. Because I know there's a lot of people who deal with stuff like that. I
0: mean, isn't it just the uh, adult, the grown-up version of the Disney princess kind yeah. of thing? Isn't it just the progression of <laughs> of that?
1: Yeah, it is. Um, and what ha- the problem with that is because some people could say, well, whatever you think about in your private life, it's yours, you know. And but that hinders me from being productive it hinders That's, me from building a healthy real relationship with someone in the real world You thank, see
0: thank you for clarifying that difference because fantasy in and of itself is not unhealthy it's when it begins to eat into the rest of our lives right you know having a sexual fetish in and of itself is not an unhealthy thing right but when it's you know Becomes maladaptive. Yes, right. That's the word I was looking for.
1: And so it definitely, it definitely is there. And um, and and I, again, it, it relates back to the trauma. So trauma shows up in every single, can show up in many different aspects of our lives. And that's where being self-aware is so important. You Tra-
0: know? Trauma is is kind of like the LinkedIn of uh, oh, God. <laughs> it's, you can't get rid of it. You can't get rid of it, or at least it's very hard to get it out of your life. Um, when you say it's you, fantasize about people that you've never met. Would it be a, a person whose name you don't even know that you, passes by you in a coffee shop, or would it be somebody on a television or an author or what? What? Help me understand.
1: Yeah, it can be someone that I have met, but but I. What's that term? Iranomania? Is it, you know, where you fantasize about someone maybe in a higher position, or you know that you're going to have this life together? So I think it's that sort of thing.
0: And Um, and are they usually somebody who you consider to be uh, more powerful, or somehow has some power over you?
1: And that comes from, and and I think that's directly related to the relationship I have with my stepfather because when I was a kid, you know, he was someone who had. A lot of power he had a lot of money and he was always holding it over my head mm-hmm. so I've had a really difficult time in my life of you know especially with men trying to break that um, that I don't know this that image of men money power you know mm-hmm. and that's really unhealthy because yeah. it was comfortable for me it was familiar to me right yeah, as we know with an, so many
0: amazing how we seek out the familiar Yes, no matter how damaging, yes, um, and don't you think it's related to that what what you said before every day I didn't know what was gonna happen?
1: No, I you had know? no idea what was going to happen, so to me.
0: it makes sense that we would seek the thing that's shitty but predictable,
1: <laughs> shitty but predictable, and that, I, that was I,
0: the name of my first band.
1: are you serious? no, oh. <laughs> It's shitty but predictable. But I, I, in some way, I almost wonder if that's where the addiction comes from. From, you know, when you're a kid and you're afraid, it almost gives you an adrenaline rush. Mm -hmm. So I kind of wonder if that's where it came from, from needing that kind of fear. But in a
0: a way that you can maybe uh, control. Yeah. Yeah. Because
1: Um, it's what you know. That adrenaline.
0: That there is something. There is something to that.
1: Definitely, you know the, the modeling. If you wanted to talk about that, that's, yeah. So, but but the modeling industry—it's not regulated. It's not a regulated industry, um, and there's all sorts of things that's wrong with you that. You don't,
0: you don't consider uh, Anna Wintour a governing body.
1: <laughs> no, and I want to be very careful about this. I I definitely do not attack anyone. Yeah. You know, it's not about attacking anyone. Um, I've been working on something for a year—a program. to to have mental health education in the modeling industry. Because it's not really anyone's fault. Um, If you're not educated about something, then how can you really be expected to know how to handle when someone's dealing with mental health, depression, eating disorders? So I think that's more of my take on it. When we worked on the bill this year, the AB 2539, addressing um the health standards in the um
0: it's just a federal or a California?
1: This was a California okay. bill. Um it, it was just saying, hey, this this industry's not regulated. Um here's what we think, you know, needs to be changed. Um but the bill got turned down after the Labor Committee. And then I said, Well, maybe maybe we can um, you know maybe there needs to be mental health education. Maybe we can approach it from a different angle. So we'll see. Um, but when I started modeling, I was sixteen I mean I was like really young but i didn't I wasn't like discovered. I wasn't you know this beautiful six foot tall you know girl who was picked out by an agent like you hear most models mm-hmm. um I no I was like, man, I want to get out of here, I'm not worth anything, and i'll maybe I can just make it as a model, you know so I just went to this school, this really famous modeling school that some famous actors have also graduated from, and they're like, "Okay, if you lose weight," and, and that was like one of the first things they told me. Like, if you lose weight, and you pay five hundred dollars for the, <laughs> always right, of course money, like you pay five hundred dollars for the runway training class that takes you to our annual competition where you're seen by all these top agencies. Then yeah, sure. You know, you're pretty, but you're kind of chubby. I was like, okay.
0: And what did you think or feel in that moment when they said you're kind I of felt chubby?
1: I horrible. I mean, I smiled because that's how I went through everything. I always smiled. I was like, and I was really soft spoken. I mean, I have a soft voice, anyways. But I was like super soft
0: spoken. Did you just feel total shame in your face?
1: Yes, but I didn't show them that. You know, yeah. I was like, of course I can do whatever you say. <laughs> so, so I went home and I threw up everywhere. You know. Um, and I was thinking, oh my god, I have to lose. I have to lose like ten pounds by a week.
0: And were you were you living (laughs) on your own at this point?
1: I was living with my dad still.
0: In where?
1: In it was um, like thirty minutes from where my mother lived. You know,
0: which is where.
1: Um, it's in just in Charleston, South Carolina. Okay,
0: so so the agency was near there. mm -hmm. Oh, okay.
1: This was all in my hometown. Okay. Um. So, and I worked at a bakery at the time. So, you
0: know. <laughs> that <laughs> so, is fantastic. It was like
1: working in a liquor store, you know, for, for as an alcoholic. Um, so, I, I started to buy diet pills, you know, which at the time they had ephedrine. They were, I think they're banned now. But mm-hmm. so I was buying diet pills and I was purging those also. And I was doing everything that I could. But in in a very extreme way to try to, I don't know, lose weight. I was exercising probably four hours a day. Oh my God. My dad, my poor dad, I mean, he knows all this stuff now, but at the time, because he would work a lot, you know. And I was like, I had, I guess you would call it an exercise addiction. You know, I would come home after school, and when I wasn't working, I would change. And he had woods behind his house. I remember I felt like an animal when I was running. Like, I even remember one time I cut myself on a branch and I tasted... This is going to sound... I'm going to sound really weird right now, but that's okay. Um, Because I was in a really weird state of mind. But, like, I remember I tasted the blood. i <laughs> like, what? I think that's... I think I just topped my whole... I think no, I just no, topped no, your no. podcast. No,
0: dude. <laughs> This podcast—that's minor okay. compared to the shit okay. we've heard. I okay. was just—I was just thinking that's kind of badass. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No. But
1: I was like, you know, when you're when you're an addict in any way, you do some really strange things, right? You and, do,
0: and you're so searching for a sense of yourself.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I tasted my blood. Like, I don't know why I did that, but. I guess like compared to like, I felt like an animal running in the back, you know, Like, <laughs> but I ran back there back for four hours, you know, and then I came back inside. I would, I, I don't want to say too much, you know, to do, but I would do really harmful things, you know, and, um,
0: uh, around, uh, your eating disorder. Yeah. Okay. I
1: was, you know, taking, I, I was taking pills and all this sort of things. And I think I lost a little bit of weight, but I definitely wasn't as thin as the other girls. And and the thing is, is that on the first day of the class, they were all with their mothers, and I wasn't with my mom. And I really remember at that time, I was thinking, damn, you know, you are a loser because you don't have your mom with you. But the first day of this class, you know, this the owner of the school was there and we had this um long runway there. And because everyone else was wearing these I don't know how they knew how to dress, but I just didn't know how to dress and I had all this makeup on my face and everyone else looked so clean and like a, you know, like a top model and everything. And th- they did their walk, you know, and I didn't know how to walk like a model. I practiced before in my room. um, But I didn't, I just didn't feel, I never felt right. You know, I never felt like I fit in. And um, so when I did my walk, my self-esteem was already, you know, shot straight to hell. So when I finished thinking like, okay, finally, I'm done. Thank God I'm done. I did it. And then the teacher said, Mr. Bose, (laughs) And I (laughs) said, yes. And to my horror, to my utter horror, she comes over and she freaking pulls up my shirt. My shirt. And I swear to you, this is a true story. She said, and there were, mind you, there were mirrors. So I had body dysmorphic disorder and like every other issue. And she's like, what kind of exercises do you do? And I'm just like, oh my God. And she said, do you see their stomachs cuz they were all kind of wearing like these tummy bang shirts and I'm like yes and she said you see their stomachs you need to go home and you need to do sit-ups until you have stomachs like theirs and she patted my stomach in front of everyone <laughs> and I just felt like I felt like I wanted to kill myself again I always felt like I wanted to kill myself you know that was my thought process I want to kill myself
0: how many times in your life do you think you have felt your face burn with shame?
1: <laughs> <laughs> More times than I ever know how to count. You
0: know, like thousands,
1: millions, millions, millions. Yeah, well, the, the thousands. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And it's always that extreme. Like I want to die. You know, it's never. There's never was that medium, that balance. Right. Like I, it's okay. I can get over this. It mm-hmm. was like I'm gonna. I was like planning my Mm -hmm. my my way out, you know,
0: (laughs) one of the things that surprised me when I started getting help for sex issues is that underneath there's many things underneath it, you know, low self-esteem, fear of loneliness, fear of abandonment. And the one that surprised me is perfectionism.
1: Oh, yeah. Like
0: when I make a mistake, I there's a part of me that thinks that the world is ending. That mm-hmm. I have lost the friendship or that like there is no, ex- I've blown it, mm. you know? Do you, yeah. do you experience that too? And
1: big time, yeah, big time, especially with having an eating disorder and that sort of thing. And the BDD, big time perfectionist. I mean, modeling
0: was like the perfect storm for all of your <clears throat> insecurities and the issues. the worst thing
1: I could have possibly, oh, probably one of the worst things, you know, it's like being in a competitive sport or ballet dancer or something like that um because you're literally putting yourself out there for everyone to critique you. So, yeah, and even because even before that, I was bred for that because in school, if we didn't get a, a good grade or we didn't, you know, I was in all these after school programs, literally my mother would pick up the the book and smack my face. She would like, you know, she was having one of her episodes she would like smack my face you know over mm-hmm. with a book so we were like in really strict environment anytime you have a strict environment you know it can create a mental health issue if you don't already have something mm-hmm. like that so the modeling industry really was not the right place for me to be but i was like thinking if i can just you know I thought, I thought it was perfect because I wanted to be accepted, right? I wanted to be accepted. Um, so that's why I got into that.
0: And, and did you think if I can just become skinny enough, I will be accepted? I yes. will be loved?
1: It was always that something I was trying to obtain, right? Yeah. If I can just be skinny enough, if I can just get my face on X amount of magazines or make enough money then I'll finally, you know, achieve something or be happy, right? But there's no you never reach that level. You never reach that. But I always question, you know, the entertainment business. I mean, it's not a bad – I wouldn't say it's a bad business, but I, I, I tell people to question – I talk to a lot of young people now, right? I go to colleges, things like that, and I, I tell people to question, what is your motivation for wanting to get – really, really question. I'm not saying that the modeling industry is bad or that beauty is bad, but I will tell you it's not everything – you got to know your motivation because it will suck the living life out of you. It, it will,
0: and it is. If you, if you're getting into it because you want to be famous, and and the byproduct of that you think is that you will feel love, you will <laughs> destroy yourself. You
1: will actually you will you will die. Yeah, you, know? you and, will.
0: And, and I say the same thing that you say to like young comics that will ask me. I will say, ask yourself why you're getting into it. Yeah. and. A healthy reason, in my opinion, is that you love the craft and you want to bring something new to it. Yeah. You have a vision for yeah. something. Yeah. Um, and that you're you're in it for the, the love of the work.
1: Yeah, well, you got to have a passion for yeah. it, you know. Um,
0: uh, so talk about, unless there was more you wanted to talk about that aspect of modeling, I, I'd like to hear you talk about the um, the prevalence of uh assault assaults or assault like behavior that's kind of condoned in the in, the, in modeling. the modeling industry yeah
1: well you know because it's not regulated all sorts of things can go on i mean there's wage theft there's you know pressures they can basically just tell you to lose wage but in, in and maybe you'll get paid for that job maybe you won't, maybe you'll get the job maybe you won't um and there's rape that goes on. A lot of these a lot of these kids, you know, they're they're minors coming into the business fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, coming all the way from home, or from like who knows where, you know, Indiana or Europe, Eastern Europe, and they're coming without their parents. Or maybe if they do come with their parents and their parents eventually leave and so the agents become like their family. Well that would be all right if they had protections, right? If they were treated like employees, they had health insurance and all this stuff, but they don't have any of that stuff. So what is their protection, you know? Um I was raped when I was a model. Uh I had, you know, I felt like I I felt a lot of times like I was pressured to be in situations I didn't want to be in sexually with people higher up, you know, especially this one particular agency with this very powerful person who worked at the agency. Um, there are these things called model dinners where, um, certain models will get invited to go. And if you attend where oftentimes there are directors of agencies, there are, um, photographers, um, agents, friends, directors, friends, they'll all attend and the models will go. And if you go, it's kind of like this unsaid thing that it'll work more. You know, it's just how the business runs because again, it's not regulated. It's a very kind of free for all business. You know, and it's always been that way. It's the entertainment business. Mm-hmm. The acting business is very similar, even though they do have protections. Sorry, but the entertainment business can be very sleazy, right? What? <laughs> What? You didn't know that? I'm not saying anything new here. Yeah. Um, but especially in the modeling business, because we're dealing with minors a lot of times, and because there are no workplace protections, you can be, a lot of dangerous things can happen.
0: So uh, some of these minors are going to dinner, and uh, predatory adults are uh, what, uh, taking advantage of them? Um, mm, yes. Yes. And is have you found the majority of it to be um, physical or emotional or financial coercion or all of the above? All
1: of the above, yeah. Um, A lot of financial coercion happens all the time. I mean... If
0: you want this, you got to do this for me. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, yeah, in many different ways, you know, lose weight or often sexual or often and also wage theft, you know, like they'll work and... They steal a lot of money for them. They also won't get paid. Period. Um, so there's just so many things that go on, and then there's the rape aspect. You know, the rape. You can look online and see photographers who rape models, which is what happened to me. Um, so what happens? You know, and how old were you? I was in my twenties. Yeah, but you oh, know.
0: oh, there's no but. <laughs> yeah, you know, I know what I mean. No but. Yeah,
1: which is again the whole. You know, I'm very. I'm strong, you know, but yeah. what, what about the guy is this his boys too we're dealing with. What about the boy? And I know there's boys because when I worked on the bill or this year, I had so many people contact me and boys, you know, young men who this happened to them, men and, and girls working as escorts for their agencies, you know, the psychological impact of that is so deep. So deep. Um, You know, and I was with one of the best agencies in the world, right? The other level of that now, the problem is that there's Instagram. I guess I'm old now. I tell people, I guess I'm old now. Because in the past four years since I've stopped, Instagram has changed modeling. It's weird.
0: Oh, so so a young... People are saying this is how I can get discovered if I put uh, attractive enough pictures of me. Up yes, there. I see.
1: Social media has changed modeling, oh, and and so also th- even for models now. Like I, you know, have because, you know, I work and I also help models um, with some mental health issues and things of that nature, and they're really stressed also because now it's not even if you're thin enough; it's not even all about that. Now it's how many followers do you have on mm-hmm. Instagram? So when when people are clients are booking models, yeah. they will say she doesn't have two hundred twenty five thousand followers. I mean, it's a it's popularity the, contest. It's, it's ridiculous. That, it's
0: that way for uh, comedians and Twitter.
1: Yeah it's, yeah, it's it's the same thing. It's yeah. I, I think it's absolutely ridiculous. You know, I I get it. I understand. I understand about advertising and stuff like that. But wouldn't you,
0: wouldn't you say in, in, another thing too is that there's very little compassion for models in our society zero as if you're you're young and you're beautiful and you're thin fuck you and any problem you have because you should be happy
1: right that that was the, the the main feedback that we got when we worked on the bill you know and and even as i've shared my story um you know a lot of times usually when i do it on a national level or on a bigger level people will say you know this girl like i've gotten comments like um It's like a slap in the face for her, you know, to share her story because, you know, because she's pretty or, you know, I'm like, dude, it doesn't matter what you look like. We're all the same inside, you know, and you don't even realize that, you know, I've always come out and said that I've never saw myself as pretty because I've suffered with BDD and all these issues. So I I just feel like. As hard as I work to, you know, advocate for these issues, people don't even listen half the time, you know, yeah. because they're too busy looking at the exterior when they don't even realize that for most of my life I wanted to kill myself. You know, it's like, so, but that doesn't, I will still keep talking about it. And, and that makes me even want to work harder to try to change things in the modeling industry because, for example, when we worked in the bill, there were lawmakers, like, making comments, you know, why does this matter, they think that models are not humans.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: These are most of the time. These are young. These are like children. You know. So can you can you beat any more to I mean? So you're telling me that they don't mean anything. They have no value, um, just because they're working in a business where they're working advertising and they're you know look a certain way that they have no worth and no value. That's the message that you're mm-hmm. giving them that they there it's okay for them to be raped and sexually abused and, and all this sort of stuff. You know?
0: And and I think the other place where you see that is rich kids. What do you have to complain about? You've you've got yeah. a big house, which a lot of times the parents, the wealthy parents, will, um, you know, use to on the child is right. to say, "What are you complaining about?" I'm sending you to a private school, right. you know, as if the you know financial uh, security is, is going to take care of emotional security when they're completely unrelated, right? You know, or ninety nine percent, in my opinion. I would imagine, too, that, you know, I've read a few stories like this where uh, a model goes into a photo shoot, uh, she's fairly naive, and the photographer is predatory and convinces the model to um, cross boundaries that she isn't comfortable crossing um, because the the photographer is making it seem as if it's no big deal. Oh, all the time. Yeah.
1: yeah, that was when, I, like, remember I had a photo shoot when I was, well, I don't know, I know mean, I was about 19 or something, but, and this was before I started to take the naked pictures, you know, purpose, but that doesn't make it seem like it's no big deal. It's like, are you ready to take off your clothes now, you know, like, um, and some of my friends who were younger, like 15, you know, who were top models, they have shared their experiences about, in New York, you know, being asked to take off their clothes and you're scared not to because you have an agency and you think you know everything revolves around your career you know you're trained like that so you think that if i don't do this i'm not going to have a job you Mm -hmm. know
0: now is the agent on set with them condoning this No. no no so if the agency had a representative wouldn't wouldn't that help if they if there was some you know almost like PETA goes to movie sets to well, make they, sure there is an abuse of...
1: They did. Um, my friend um, who actually worked on the bill with me, she did help to pass a law, you know, the Child Act. Um, however, the thing is, is that stuff still goes on, right? Because the industry is not regulated, this is the problem. The industry needs to be regulated.
0: And that's why I think codependency support groups are so great because they help you gain the tools to um detach in a way with love that doesn't try to tell the person what to do, but says by me removing myself from this relationship because it's too hard to watch you kill yourself. That is my message mm. to you yeah. that I can't stand here and watch you self-destruct because it, it hurts too much. Absolutely. And, and that will get through to the person much more than here's what you need to do.
1: Right. Yeah, that's that's that was the same thing that we did when we had an intervention with my mom, you know. And, um, because I flew from Spain and my brother and I, we planned this intervention and we finally just said with her, we love you, but we cannot, um, if, if you're going to continue to do this, we can't have a relationship with you, you know. Um, and i think that's a much better message than just forcing someone you know or or and and also having that codependent Mm -hmm. enabling someone yeah which is the worst thing you can ever do for somebody but it's hard when you love somebody you know
0: and you're afraid of people being mad at you you know you just cannot be an adult in the world and not have people upset with you it's it's impossible yeah uh how did your mom react to the intervention
1: She... she was very hard for her to take because she had never admitted that she had a problem with alcohol. You know? Yeah. I mean, and she... But she was, like, really heavy with the alcohol. I mean, she... At that point, she... This was in 2012 when I was having my biggest problems with anorexia and everything. And she was, um... To the point where she couldn't work because she was passing out at work and urinating all over herself. She was, um... Like she would get in car accidents and disappear. She would like run away and literally no one could find her. She did. She had got it, you know. And then she would return home like two days later and just laugh when you know. Which also had a bit to do with her, you know, other mental health issues. But they couldn't treat her other mental health issues because she wouldn't stop drinking. But she didn't. She didn't think she had a problem. She was vomiting blood. You know, all the signs that your body's shutting down from the alcohol. There, so when I went to see my mom, when we had the intervention, I hadn't seen her in like over a year, and I will never forget because when I went to see her, um, I didn't recognize her. she, she um, her boyfriend had left her because you know she was so just destructive, and he told her, "You know I'm not going to support you anymore." Um, so she had gotten d u i and she met someone in that d u i class of all things who was really a bad person for her. He basically was like just someone who was giving her alcohol. he also was beating her up, so it was like this domestic violence situation so when I met my when I saw my mom again, she looked like she was basically homeless. she was probably like... 80 pounds heavier and when she came out of the house so when my brother and I went to get her from the house she was living in she was living in the the house with that guy and he had a gun on him he um, she came out stumbling with no shoes on it took her like 30 minutes to come out of the house and um, my brother and I were like hiding in the car behind the bushes because, you know, we didn't know what kind of mm-hmm. situations was. Mom came stumbling out of the house with a dirty shirt and, you know, literally didn't recognize her because her body was so swollen from binge drinking like every mm-hmm. single day. Her hair was all messed up and she didn't know where she was because she was disoriented, you know. um, And uh, we looked at each other, you know, but she didn't look at me. She, like, looked past me and looked off into the sky somewhere like, you know, Mom, don't you remember? We have to go. We're going to, you know, go have dinner, which really we we're going to have an intervention. But So it was just so, it's just such a weird experience. And she did finally go into rehab for 60 days. And I stayed for about two weeks um, to spend time with her. And, I, and those two weeks were, I think, it's like the only time that I remember since, you know, I was probably, I don't know, like four years old or something that I remembered actually feeling like really feeling that I had a connection with her, you know, because she was sober and she was in a place where, you know, they, she was getting better and she was had access to medication and things like that. Um and I thought she was going to be there you know for the full ninety days, and was planning to come back, but she just she woke up one day and she was complaining that she was seeing shadows, she was complaining that she was seeing like these ghost figures and everything, and she just decided, "I don't want to be here anymore one day. The weird thing about that is, and why I was talking about a ghost earlier, the weird thing about that was the day before she left she decided she didn't want to be there I was living in France with my um you know, boyfriend at the time and i saw uh, i was folding laundry and I saw a grim reaper I don't so when I was studying about this about the double they say that if you see this figure of someone and then you see a grim reaper it's a warning in your life that someone is going to die. So I saw that and I knew um exactly in that moment that like I heard a voice in my head that your mother's going to die. Oh. And I knew that. I actually went to the computer and I pulled a picture of my mom and I started to pray for my mom. Like I can't even explain this logically to people, you know. But that's something that happened and um the next day um because it was a big time difference, you know. So the next day, her boyfriend called me and told me that she had left. She just upped and left. I couldn't get in touch with her because her phone was not on. So she died two weeks later. She got in an alcohol-related car accident. Um, And, you know, it's just... I don't know. I just think that... Um, I, I do believe in signs and spiritual things because I've seen them my whole life. But, um I, I, I find that very interesting how that happened, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's signs if we just look for them, spiritual signs and that sort of thing. But um, sometimes I think also we choose not to look um, for signs in our life too, you know. Yeah. Um, but but her, my mother's death was a big wake-up call for me because um, because I realized that if I didn't get help when I saw my mom dead in the casket, and I was looking at her face, I thought, God, like, she looked rubber, you know, just like rubber, and she looked so bloated and so big, and I thought, if I don't get help, I'm going to end up just like my mom, you know, because here I am, um, starving myself, and I was like, I don't know, it weighed barely nothing to me, and I thought, really, I'm just going to end up dying, you know, um, and so I had to take that step. Like mental health issues are not a choice. But I do believe even though I can still struggle cuz it's a mental health issue, I do believe there's a point where we make a choice to get better. And unfortunately it had to come with my mother's death, but in some way that was like a light. It was a good a good thing, you know.
0: I I don't know many people whose decision to get better wasn't from having their hand forced. Through pain, loss, humiliation, mm-hmm. or raw fear, it's rarely from the intellectual idea that gosh, this just really isn't working out too well. you know for a lot of us with mental health issues, that's never enough. It's mm-hmm. usually got to be we are looking at just something awful in the in the face, and um, it can be the best thing that ever happened to us that pain and but i'm not i'm preaching to the choir you know that you know that oh. you're a living example of it and uh I, i'm so glad that um your uh publicists reach out to me uh, about coming on the on the show you you're one of the most compassionate people um, Aww, i've ever thank met you. yeah Aww, again thank here, you. here's what i don't like about you <laughs> um and you're gonna need to sit uh, for this because there's a lot uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I just want to. I just want to uh, thank you um, and for your candor because you uh, have been so open about so, so many things. That a lot of people would say, "Can we not talk about that?" Because uh, it's just, uh, it's you know, whatever.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: Your book is called um, uh, "Washed Away uh, from Darkness to Light." Yes. Uh, Nikki Dubose. It, it's available on Amazon. I take it.
1: Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Yeah. No nope, Kindle. Yeah.
0: We'll uh, put links to it on our uh, book re- recommendation page. Our little Amazon link. Thank you. And um, uh, I'm really glad that our our paths crossed. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here.
0: So many thanks to to Nikki. What uh, God! What an incredible incredible story. Um, before I take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys that uh, there's a couple of different ways to support the show if you uh if you feel so inclined, uh, but they're very important to keeping the show going and uh, we we always need um, more budget uh, here. Uh, one of the newest ways you can support the show is becoming a monthly uh, contributor through Patreon and um, with Patreon, it's so much easier for me to keep track. Than it is through PayPal. PayPal has the worst user interface, uh, not only for donor but for um, the person getting the donations. So, um, anybody who's going to become a new monthly donor, I highly recommend it over PayPal. Um, I'm still happy to take uh, PayPal if that's if that's easy for you guys. I'm happy to get any any donations. Um, uh, the Patreon link is. Uh, patreon.com slash mentalpod on patreon is spelled p-a-t-r-e-o-n um and you can donate as little as a dollar a month up to several hundred dollars and then there's rewards that's what i really about like about patreon is uh, we can disperse awards to you guys based on the level of of donation um and just so you know when you donate a million dollars a month um for some reason we decided you shouldn't get anything. I don't know why. We're gonna go back and rethink that one, but it just something about that just felt good, you know? Just felt right to to stiff you at that amount. Uh yes, we also take uh PayPal. You can also do a one-time donation through PayPal. Um you can donate frequent flyer miles like I, I mentioned earlier in the podcast. Um If you're going to shop at Amazon, uh, enter through our search portal on our homepage, just click on the little Amazon logo. Um, And then Amazon gives us a little bit of money if you buy something that doesn't make the price of what you're uh, buying any more expensive. Um, You can also uh, support us non-financially by um, giving us a good rating on iTunes. That boosts our ranking and maybe brings more people to the show. You can spread the word through social media. That's a really, really big way to to, to help out that doesn't cost anything, and um, I would appreciate it. But let's be honest. It's a victory if any of us just get out of bed. Our bar is very low. Well, maybe I should speak for myself. All right. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by, normal girls punch a hole in the wall when they're bought the wrong kind of hot chocolate, right? I don't know how she fits that on her driver's license. There, Her picture must be so small uh, about her depression. I thought this energy drink would help me be more productive, but now I just hate myself at maximum speed. Um, About her skin picking. Uh, my boyfriend complimented me on my extra soft lips. Little does he know it's because I've been chewing the skin off all day. About our anger issues. I actually punched the wall because I was bought peppermint hot chocolate instead of plain. Snapshot from her life. Once, when meeting up with my cousin and her friend at the mall, the friend puts his arm around my shoulder. There are a selected few people I allow to physically touch me, so I asked him to take his arm away. He laughed and thought I was just messing around. Then I told him that if he didn't take his arm away, I'd punch him in the dick and kick him in the mouth. He didn't come very close to me after that. Comment to make the podcast better? More buttholes. Um, I have lobbied uh, Congress to pick a month, doesn't matter which month, uh, and designate it National Herbert's Butthole Month. I have not heard back. And I was told that uh, democracy works. Not so sure anymore. This is from the Being Hospitalized survey, and this was filled out by um, Anna. She was hospitalized for a suicide attempt, and she writes, um, as to how her experience was, uh, they kept me for three nights. The only goal the hospital stay achieved was that I did not have the means to kill myself. The stay was not therapeutic. In fact, it was uncomfortable at best and traumatizing at worst. It was uncomfortable and that my roommate not only snored loudly, but also couldn't seem to pee in the toilet. Every time I tried to use the bathroom, I found pee all over the toilet seat and floor. Group therapy was only one hour every day. The rest of the time, the only activity was one little TV set in the common room tuned into mind-numbing sitcoms. At least three people every day would find me and show me their self-injury scars and tell me about their painful pasts, including stories of rape and abuse. I felt badly for these people, but was in too delicate a state to take in their pain. I spent three days trying to hide from the other patients to protect myself from their pain. After my release, I visited my psychiatrist and couldn't have been more shocked by her reaction to my suicide attempt. She jabbed her finger towards a wing of the hospital, visible through her office window, and yelled at me. In that wing, there are children dying of cancer. They are fighting for their lives, and you, a healthy woman, try to kill yourself? What is wrong with you? How is it that you don't value your life? The ironic thing about her tirade is that shortly before my suicide attempt, I kept thinking, what the hell is wrong with you? You have your health, your youth, a loving family, and you don't want to live. Why can't you just enjoy one day? Why can't you just enjoy your life? These thoughts made me feel guilty, depressed, and even more screwed up. If I could turn back time, I would go back to that moment and stand my ground against that psychiatrist. I would tell her that just as cancer is an illness, so is depression, and it's funny that she wouldn't have picked that nugget of truth up during all her psychiatrist education. Psychiatrist asked me to get an immediate blood draw in the hospital, and I asked if she would please prescribe me one pill of anti-anxiety medication since that's the only way I don't faint during blood draws. She refused me the pill. I asked two more times, and she refused each time. Fifteen minutes later, the hospital lab called my psychiatrist and told her that I had not only fainted, but had taken a very, fairly serious non-epileptic seizure in response to the blood draw. The psychiatrist never apologized to me, and I never saw her again. That I would like to know what avenues are available to somebody when they get that kind of care from somebody to report um i'm sure it it depends on the state but i wonder if you if you could um report that psychiatrist to the um the medical board for that state cuz that is just that is just unbelievable that's unbelievable. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by and by the way, high fucking five for you uh realizing that, that uh that, that person was in the wrong and a terrible psychiatrist. <clears throat> a guy who calls himself Ack Ack Ack. He was straight in his 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, um, He was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, when I was four, I was molested multiple times by a babysitter's husband. When I was eight, I was molested by a 14-year-old male. I've processed this through a lot of therapy. I have no feelings, only understanding. He's been physically and emotionally abused. My grandfather would hit me. It was never a beating, but points were made. It made me weary of authority. Uh, I feel mad about it. He was a real bastard, and when he died, I was happy. He died when I was 10. My second ex-wife would do emotional blackmail on me. She would withhold love to get her way. What she did was a reflection of what was going on inside her head and had little to nothing to do with me. We are friends now. Any positive experiences with your abusers? Yes and yes. My second ex-wife emotionally abused me, but she also taught me so much about life, and she taught me happiness. I have forgiven the abuse and have moved on. She's still in my life, but is a friend, and I don't have to deal with her and her demons 24-7. Darkest thoughts. Taking a machine gun and gunning down a stadium of people makes my stomach turn that I've had this thought. I don't own a gun. Never fire one, never plan to. Never fired one, never plan to. Darkest secrets. Uh, Molested as a child. I currently have ex-wife number two's passport. She's been asking about it, but I told her I don't have it. Fucked up, huh? Question mark. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, Wearing a mask. Not like... uh, uh, sadism, uh, but regular mask, or even a Halloween mask. Uh, sharing that, I feel fine sharing it. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone that you haven't been able to? Uh, Mom and Dad, you did your best, and on some level I love you, but I don't feel attached to you. I can't tell them, even though it is true. Um, what, if anything, do you wish for? I want everybody to feel love. Have you shared these things with others? Not really, no. How do you feel after writing these things down? It was cathartic. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? There is no them. There is only us. That is so beautiful. Thank you for that. There is no them. There is only us. Wow. If you came up with that, um, I, I, I might have to, uh, I don't know. How would I? How would I congratulate you? Um, I will congratulate you by not casting you to hell next time you do something that bothers me. That's that's as high as I'll go. And if you need to walk away from this transaction right now, you walk away. But I'm not budging. This is an awful moment filled out by Warrior Wounds, and uh, she writes an unexpected and excellent consequence of downloading the podcast theme song for my ringtone, hearing the podcast music play, look down at my phone, and see the word mom on the screen. Thank you for that. Uh, This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Meru, M-A-R-U. He's In his 50s, straight, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He's been physically and emotionally abused. I was beaten on occasion by my father. I was caned, slapped, punched by teachers at school. I was neglected by my parents. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, Um, but he doesn't elaborate. Darkest thoughts, nothing significant comes to mind. Uh, Darkest Secrets. Chronic porn addiction is the bane of my life, and I don't speak to anyone about this. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Having sex with my cousin, who I hung around with as a prepubescent kid. Um, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my mother and father, you failed me as parents. You did not talk to me or explain things to me that you should have. You were violent towards me on occasion. Because of the neglect and maltreatment that I suffered under your care, I have suffered anxiety and low self-esteem all my life. I am so angry about it. What, if anything, do you wish for? That internet porn was banned the same way that LSD and cocaine became banned once they realized how dangerous they are. Uh, He's not shared any of this stuff with another person. Um, And how do you feel after writing it down? Still a porn addict that can't stop i.e. frustrated. Um, Comments to make the podcast better. Do a program about porn addiction. Uh, Listen to the episode with uh, Sterling Gardner. Uh, Sterling is spelled S-T-I-R-L-I-N-G. And I don't know much, but I do know this. It will not get better by you keeping it to yourself and not opening up to a person who can help you. That I do know. And, um, I know it's probably scary because, um, it was, you grew up in a house where there was no trust, where it didn't feel safe. And that's kind of the conundrum of people who had shitty childhoods being told you should go get help and be vulnerable <laughs> with a stranger doing it. Um, yeah. So. But these are... The ball is in your court now. You can't change what happened in the past and what happened fucking sucks. Um, But you do have control over whether or not you let it degrade the rest of your life. And it is not something that um, is beyond management or help or whatever whatever word uh, you want to use. People do recover and lead functioning lives. Um, people who have addictions, sex addictions, and any type of addictions. Uh, captain Bullshit, uh, I'm a fan already. I, I think she's probably the best captain out in the sea of bullshit. Um, she uh, she runs a nice trawler. I'll tell you that. I don't know how I decided that it was a trawler that uh, that she's running. And uh, believe it or not, Captain Bullshit takes a lot of people's bullshit. You would think it would be the exact opposite. You would think, oh man, a tough name like that, she is not going to take flack from anyone. No. She's a total doormat. I still want to hit rewind. All right. Uh, She struggles with alcoholism and drug addiction, and her struggle in a sentence, please don't take my vodka from me. I'm almost finished with the bottle. Once it's gone, there will be no problems. That's great. About her perfectionism, I simply can't do anything right. Why do people get to be smart and talented, but I don't? About her self-harm, if I punish myself severely enough, I will be a better person. Oh my God, that is like at the heart of what we subconsciously think when we beat ourselves up. Maybe I should just speak for you and me, but that is the illusion when I beat myself up is is that I will... (laughs) This will build my character. Snapshot from her life, staying up late to cut myself after receiving a B on a paper instead of an A. Sending you some love. Um, This is an awfulsome moment uh, filled out by I want that motherfucking cookie, bitches. And she writes, in 2011, I was in PHP, Partial Hospitalization Program for Eating Disorders. One of the program's treatment practices was to take us on field trips to restaurants so we could practice ordering food. This practice is extremely difficult for those of us who struggle with eating disorders. While one of my peers was trying desperately to order a latte, very hard for her, the person taking the order kept messing it up. It brought up so much anxiety, not only for my friend, but for us as a group. What if they all get our orders wrong? Do they know what what they are doing? Do they know they are serving food to a bunch of people who are about to cry because they all have eating disorders and this is terrifying? Of course, the restaurant didn't know this. We certainly didn't tell them why we were there. They messed up the latte and didn't bring it out until we were about ready to leave. To apologize for getting the latte wrong, they brought us a huge plate of gigantic cookies. We were all silent, and the counselors accompanying us froze. You could just see the oh shit on their faces. And then we laughed, hard. A plate full of cookies for a bunch of anorexics and bulimics. The irony could not have been better. We gathered the cookies and gave them over to the staff at the treatment facility. Thank you for that i I live for the moments in recovery when when the laughter comes. It is just like uh, it's like uh it's so cathartic. This is uh the being hospitalized uh survey, and actually you know what what are we at? Good God, I think we're gonna do a three hour one somebody. Somebody alert Herbert's butthole. Yeah, I think we'll get this in under the three-hour mark. Um, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself young and confused. She is straight in her 20s, raised in a stable and safe environment. She's never been sexually abused. Uh, She's never been physically abused, but she's not sure if she's been emotionally abused. She writes, my mother, I believe, was deeply traumatized by the abuse. Her mother-in-law, my paternal grandfather, um, um, by her mother-in-law, my paternal grandfather. I'm very confused. Uh My paternal grandmother most likely has some form of narcissism and was incredibly cruel to my mother. Uh Though my mother only lived with her for two years and no longer is in frequent contact with her, my mother still bears scars from that time. Uh, though around her friends and even her philosophy of life, she seems very laid back and happy. She has cyclical negative thoughts. She was constantly correcting me for things that I did wrong growing up that I had no control over. By the way, that's Emotionally abusive. Uh, Simple things like suggesting we take one route over uh, another to the store, and if anything went wrong on the way there, she would blame me, always blaming others and obsessing over how she could have avoided one small mistake or another. That has left me to be a very indecisive person. I'm afraid to ever make a decision because I'm so used to being criticized for making one, which translates into a lack of confidence in myself and all my decisions, so I'm not sure. This is considered emotional abuse, but I don't believe it's normal. Yeah, you know, I think the label isn't as important. Um, it's, it, you know, we do know, I think you could safely say it was um, not an emotionally safe or nurturing environment. And that's all you need to know to start working on it and processing it with somebody. Um, Darkest Thoughts. Sometimes I wish I could fade out of existence, that all my pain and frustration could just disappear along with me so I no longer have to deal with it. Darkest Secrets. I have vaginismus and have been seeking treatment for over a year. I've made some progress, but not enough, it seems, at times. I don't know why... Uh, really, I have the condition. I just feel broken inside that I can't do something that is so instinctual and at times feels like a part of me isn't really there. My doctors uh, have now also seemed to run out of answers. When I go into appointments, they say things like, uh, you still haven't gotten better. And I can see the confused looks sometimes filled with pity and uh, try to act strong. I want to reassure them that I am positive and hopeful But really, I just want to run out of the office as fast as I can and hope no one can tell uh, I'm trying not to cry. Um, She's not comfortable sharing uh, any sexual fantasies. um, And a lot of them have gone away uh, since her diagnosis. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, with my mother and my psychologist somewhat, but I've never shared in this much detail. I've mostly just discussed my condition. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel sad and realized how much I don't talk about these things, but how much there is buried deep inside. Anything you'd like to say uh, to someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I hope that they stay positive and that they find supportive relationships in their lives to help them get through this. And then she would like to hear an episode um where that's touched on and we do uh, have an episode. It was I think in the first year um or second year with Aaron. It was either Erin or Aaron W. I can't remember how we referred to her, but um yeah, a large uh, part of the podcast is is about that. Um and um that must be incredibly frustrating. I'm 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 so sorry you're having to deal with that. Now, uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by all Pop-Tarts are awful. I don't know why I'm reading this. If you, if you had said half of Pop-Tarts are awful or frosted Pop-Tarts are awful, I wouldn't even be debating. I'd probably be reading this uh, while it was framed in gold. I digress. About her uh, misophonia. For those of you that don't know what it is, it's um, being annoyed by uh, certain sounds, having like a visceral, physical, emotional reaction to uh, certain sounds, like the most common one being uh, people loudly chewing gum or their food. But it can be different ones for each person. Uh, It's like I change from. Uh, Bruce Banner to the Hulk at the click of a pen, a snapshot from her life. I was on the train once and a woman was turning the pages of her magazine so loudly I wanted to rip it out of her hands and hit her in the face with it. I felt like she was doing it intentionally to piss me off. The train was stuck in between stops so I could not get out and I started to have a panic attack. As soon as we pulled into the next subway station, I got out without even noticing what stop it was and went outside to get a cab the rest of the way. Just writing this makes my heart start beating faster, and I need a cigarette. Sometimes the sound of a child's laughter makes me want to rip my hair out. Any comments to make the podcast better? More people of color on the show. The episode with Royce White was so amazing and important. I think it was the first time I ever heard a black man talk about mental illness and with such ease. Also, a conflicting comment. I can't stand when your mouth is dry because I can hear every time you open and close your mouth, but at the same time, if you take a sip of your drink, it makes me want to punch a wall. Every time you say you're going to move away from the mic to take a sip, I brace myself by digging my nails into my skin because I always still hear the gulp. Please don't cast me to hell. It sounds like you are in hell having that. Oh my God. I'm so sorry that you have to deal with that on a daily basis. And I swear to God right now, I just unconsciously reach for my water. <laughs> I'm setting it down. I have said, you know, you know what? I'm not going to be codependent. But I am going to move far enough away that you don't hear anything while I take a sip of water. Hopefully you didn't hear that. Um, I was talking to a um, person this last weekend who deals with misophonia, and we are going to try to create a uh, survey for you guys to take because I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I want to know more about it. And um, together, we're going to try to come up with some good questions. And if you guys have any questions that you would like um, on the topic, um, feel free to email me those. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by codependency table for two. And... She writes, I grew up in a totally chaotic environment with a mother who has borderline personality disorder and was a meth addict while I was a child. I was sexually, physically, and emotionally abused. My mother, who I have a very challenging relationship with and turned me into a parent as a child, calling me mini-mama, tries to be better now, has no awareness of how her actions have affected me. I recently went through a breakup with a man that I'd been on and off again Uh, for about three and a half years. I've been dealing with some sadness and depression around the way that breakup happened and how emotionally unavailable he was. Undoubtedly, I am attracted to those people because it mirrors uh, the way that my parents were. I was talking on the phone to my mom, and she says, you know, you really need to search within yourself to figure out why you're attracted to people who can't be there for you emotionally. Oh, my God. Thank you for sharing that. Fantastica, as the Germans would say. Let's see. This uh, is an email that I got. Um, I am Ayesha Mamar Gaddafi, uh, the only daughter of the embattled president of Libya, Honorable Ma- Mamar Gaddafi. Um I am currently residing in Burkina Faso unfortunately as a refugee I am writing this mail with tears and sorrow from my heart asking for your urgent help I have passed through pains and sorrowful moment since the death of my late father Um I hope my mail meet you in con- in good condition of health uh, dear, I have decided to contact you after much thought, considering the fact that we have not meet before, but because of some circumstance obliged me, I decided to contact you due to the urgency of my present situation here in the refugee camp for your rescue and also for a business venture project, which I need your assistant And this business establishment in your country as my foreign partner as well as my legal appointed trustee. I don't know if you guys realize this, but she is a refugee from the war that is going on over run-on sentences. It is a very, very serious thing. And there are two camps, obviously, those who believe that sentences should be short and sweet and use a lot of periods and exc- exclamation points. And then her side of the conflict uh, where they believe the longer the sentence, the better. I don't know which one to take because I want to help her out, uh, but I don't know which is the right side. So I wrote to both sides to ask them what I should do. And um, the other side said, um, cease contact, period, at once, period. Shortened to the point. Her side wrote, Dearest beloved Paul of the stand-up comedy and basic cable food cooking fall flat joke show from ancient TV, now making talk for headphone each week for sad crazy people to listen and help them which is good but help me too because desert is hot and running dangerous low on commas which we seem to go through every day but not sure why. That was our last one. We are down to only ellipsis. Dot dot dot. I I don't understand what that what that is. What she's saying, but I wish her the best. And I think her father was a terrific man. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by citizen Dick. Um, a lot of dudes took uh, surveys um, this week. Thank you. Sometimes I worry that, uh, you know, we don't, we don't have a, a good enough mix of uh, voices. Let's see. He is straight in his 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, never been sexually abused, but he has been emotionally and physically. My dad always told me I was worthless. He made fun of me for not having any friends. He would always take his frustrations out on me. He'd break into my room and hit me while I was laying in bed. Uh, No positive experiences with him. Darkest thoughts, cutting myself, uh, purposefully overdosing on heroin, uh, throwing a Molotov cocktail through the window of past employers. At one point did a Molotov cocktail go from being a delicious bar drink to a weapon of war? I want to know what happened. Boy, if ever a sentence was worthy of rewind, erase, I think that last one was. Darkest secrets. I used to go through my mother's underwear drawer and smell them when I was really young. And I have restraining orders from people. Uh, Sexual fantasies, most powerful to you. I don't really have fantasies. Too depressed to have any sort of sexual drive. Uh, What would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'm sorry, I'm a messed up person or get fucked. What, if anything, do you wish for? Peace. Have you shared these things with others? I don't like to be a burden on the few people that care about me, so I haven't. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little better. Um, and then he says, I'm the last person who should be giving anyone else advice. You know, you wrote, I don't like to be a burden on the few people that care about me, so I haven't. Opening up to people is a way... Of letting them care about you and it's been my experience that when we show that we care about other people not only do they feel good but we feel good and it's a win-win so I highly recommend um, testing the waters of opening up to those people and you'll, you'll usually know within a couple of conversations of testing the water um, you know, I wouldn't just go immediately right into the heaviest things that have ever happened to you, like I do. Um, test the waters, and um, yeah, this is. I want to read this. I'm. I'm trying to. Uh, we have twelve minutes. We have twelve minutes. Oh, this is going to be close. Um. Struggle in a sentence. Uh, Ready, Herbert. I'm just making sure he's ready in case we need to stretch uh, at the 179 minute. Uh, D shares about his depression. Always coming up short. Always. About his codependency. Wanting someone to show me how to want me. Boy, that is profound. Wanting someone to show me how to want me. Wow. That is so fucking good. That's so good I actually resent you a little bit. And I'm glad now that you have all these horrible things. I'm kidding, of course. Why did I need to say I'm kidding, of course? Because I'm stretching. <laughs> um, uh, his PTSD, fearing the past has determined my future. Um, and then other uh, ways of expressing his depression, upset with myself for feeling bad when it could be worse and secretly wishing things were worse to justify how I feel and giving up. Those are so good. Thank you, Dee. Insert clever fake name here, uh, shares about her codependency. Fantasizing about all the nice things my therapist will say about me to her fellow therapists during their office holiday party. Oh, you guys are the best. This is an awfulsome moment from I Really Miss One Direction. And uh, she writes, When I was 16, I started self-harming. I can remember everything about the very first time I started doing it. I can remember the weather and the clothes I wore and the song I listened to on repeat as I sat alone in the bathroom hurting myself. I've avoided that song for five years because anytime I hear it, I'd get flashbacks and panic attacks, and I'd remember the exact pain in my gut. I'm 21 now, and the artist who wrote that song re-released it as a part of their new album, and I thought, fuck it, and gave it a listen. I started crying immediately, and I felt exactly how I knew I would feel. I know this sounds cheesy, but after a few minutes... I pulled myself out of it, and I realized that the scars on my arms have been healed and untouched for nearly three years. It feels so lovely to realize I'm not 16, and I get further away from being 16 every day. Thank you for that. That was lovely. Lovely. That was so lovely. That that survey had a, a, a little bit of a floral scent to it. That might have been the first time in my life I've used the phrase floral scent, but not the last. Oh, no. Hmm. I read this one. Yeah. This is a first day in therapy survey, and this is filled out by a guy who's... This survey, by the way, we don't... um, Somebody else came up with this survey, and there's no uh, nickname for it. So it's just a guy between 26 and 35. uh, What brought him to therapy? Uh, The podcast gave me the courage to finally want to talk to somebody. Uh, I've tried before but never found the strength to talk. I like how I acted like I was surprised when I've read this before. Such an asshole. Oh, the podcast did, Paul said, reading it for the second time. I'd kind of, for, I'd forgotten that it said that. Um, I've tried before, but never found the strength to talk about my past. Uh The fears I had starting it... uh well, I had hidden my secrets for about 23 years, I'm 29 while typing this, I was afraid I was too normal for my past to be real, that I didn't belong anywhere, that I was too normal to be fucked up, yet too fucked up to be normal, causing my therapist uh, to tell me I was lying and that she didn't want to see me anymore. That was his fear. Um, did any of that come true? No. What's worked best for you in therapy? I'm writing this a few days after my first session, but remembering how a guest on the podcast, it was a psychiatrist or therapist, said the more open and honest you are with your therapist, the faster and more successful therapy will be. So I was trying to be completely open with my therapist. What were your initial impressions of the therapist? She asked me questions which helped me talk. If she didn't ask questions, I wouldn't have known what to say and would have probably not said what I wanted. Nothing uh, about it was unsettling. Do you feel that you can be completely honest with your therapist? Not sure if I can be honest with her or not, but I'm not letting that stop me right now. I'll find out if it was a good thing or a mistake later. Uh, Anything that you would like to share with a group of new therapists? Ask your clients specific questions. Don't wait for your clients to get to their big concerns. We are scared to get to the big problem, but you can guide us with appropriate questions. Tell us that if we are uncomfortable answering any of the questions, that it can be tabled till the client is comfortable. I like that last uh, that last one especially. That's a great idea because I know a lot of uh, therapists like to purposefully not um, prod the client because they feel like um, it's more organic and that the client will choose to talk about what is really going on with them at the moment. But yeah, I guess that makes sense. What you wrote that some of them are so afraid to, they're just going to talk about, you know, whatever. This is an awful moment filled out by Tulip. Um, And this has a floral scent. She writes, when I was 16, I hit a hellish depressive spell. My speech was slurred. I looked like I had crawled off a morgue slab. You get the picture. Thoughts of suicide were never far, and one evening I figured it was time I carried it out. I had a bottle of pills in my hand and a glass of water, but it wasn't without much contemplation and hesitation. Something in me just went, nah, not right now, and I flushed the contents down the toilet. I went about my evening and chatted with a friend. While the cat made out with the phone, I'm not sure what that made, um, I filled her in on what had just transpired. She applauded what I had done and added, God damn it, Tulip, if you kill yourself, I'm going to have to kill you. I filled in my psychiatrist on what had happened and I received nothing shy of a kudos for my last minute fuck it. I'm almost 30 now and I must say, That was the best thing I ever said. Fuck it, too. Thank you, Tulip. I wish you a warm and bountiful spring. Oh, if you know the amount of self-hatred I have for that last sentence. This is a... We're going to be coming right in on the uh, 180 mark. We may not need uh, Herbert's butthole to help us stretch. Those of you that are new listeners, I'm not going to try to explain any of this to you. You can go to the forum and ask questions. Um, This is filled out by Aegean, who is a trans female. And uh, she was hospitalized twice for suicidal thoughts and recently for attempted suicide. And she writes, the first time it was a Christian hospital who told me not to bring up that I'm trans. When I left, I tried my damnedest to avoid feeling... um, To avoid feeling yams, I don't know if that's a typo or I'm old and it's a phrase I don't know, Um, and be positive, but ended up back in the hospital a little over a week later. The second time was basically like prison for homeless people with mental illness. They heavily medicated me and scared the shit out of me with a disciplinary approach to mental illness. It was all about symptoms in exchange for freedoms. They discharged me without continuing my meds, which caused really serious withdrawal symptoms. I spent the last year agonizing about wanting to die, but felt like I'd just end up back at that facility or maybe something worse. My family had also placed a lot of guilt on me to not go down that road again, so I lied to myself that if I ever tried to, that if I never tried to kill myself. So so that if I never tried to kill myself, period, I don't understand. This last time I overdosed on pills and had every intention of dying. They kept me in ER for six days waiting to be placed, obsessing over the fact that I hadn't died and that I should have died. I was finally placed at Stanford Medical, and they went to great lengths to set me up with a plan for recovery and respected that I was trans in a way that made me feel safer than I had previously. They also did everything they could to accommodate my laundry list of food allergies. The supportive environment alone was enough to take a big step out of despair. I'm not totally over wanting to die, but I never was the last two times either, And this time, I have a plan to get me back on my feet. I feel aware of what's going on, not bottling up my feelings out of guilt. I have real hope, even though I haven't totally given up on dying. You can't fake this stuff. I'm grateful for being set up with a realistic view of my situation and avenues to recovery. That is, that's like the podcast in a nutshell right there. High fucking five and high five to Stanford for, um having or at least the staff that you encountered there we have a minute and a half and i think we are going to make the 180 mark without any need from herbert this is filled out it's a happy moment by Roserade is my favorite pokemon um yesterday i found out i got an interview at yale to pursue my phd with the chemistry biology field I was floored. While I've always been intelligent, depression, bulimia, and anxiety completely fucked my GPA these first couple of years of my undergraduate. I wrote in my admissions essay about my depression. I wrote about my ideas. I showed them my mind. Some of my recommendation writers told me it started off like Sylvia Plath, and there was no way I would get an interview. I would come off unstable, they said. I would come off as crazy. I thought for sure that they wouldn't want to fuck up like me, some girl from a small college in the middle of nowhere, born to poor, dysfunctional family. I'm in disbelief. From the earliest memories I have, I have felt out of place. These past four years, I finally felt like I belonged. I felt loved. My research lab has become like a family and understands me in ways I never had. People who appreciate my dry, sarcastic humor and scientific puns that make my family groan. I can't believe I made it. I can't believe I'm alive. But yet, despite all my accomplishments and work, I don't feel like I've earned it. I can't stop sobbing. I'm so overwhelmed and happy. It is felt to have... Oh, it's so over. I'm so overwhelming and happy. It is felt to have someone genuinely care about me. Um, make what you will of that sentence. I, I'm not even going to try to figure out what word was supposed to be what word, but I think we get the vibe that it's beautiful. Uh, I will never forget all of my college friends and professors who have actually given a fuck about me. I will never forget this podcast, Paul, and and uh, always reminding me that I am not alone. I feel so fortunate, and for the first time in my life, I can see myself for who I am, a young, empathetic, and intelligent woman who has so much to give instead of the pile of shit I have always seen myself as. 181 minutes. We did it. We did it! I don't know why I feel like weird. <laughs> something magical about the three-hour mark to me. Um, now you know why? I think because there, there's a part of my brain that is like, you self-indulgent, egotistical narcissist. Who in the fuck wants to hear you drone on for three fucking hours? And then the healthy part of me is like, no, fuck you. He has some good stuff to say. Yeah, it's not all perfect. But he's a good guy. And he's doing what he loves. So shut the fuck up. We're going three hours. And if we need to, we're calling in Herbert's butthole. Put that in your stocking. Well, we're almost at the almost at the year-end. I think one more show. Yeah, one more show. Um, I I hope you're taking care of yourselves with all the stresses of uh, being around people that trigger us. And um, I hope you remember that you're not alone no matter what it is that you're going through. And that There's no finish line. You're okay exactly as you are. Scars and all. Defects and all. Struggles and all. You know, if we can just accept ourselves and the universe around us in this this moment as it is, and the things that we can't control, um, least for me, life gets a lot easier when I can have those moments. Um, But then again, I'm usually high on Pop-Tarts. I think I'm going to go make one. Uh, Now this is getting self-intelligent, and this is a mean DJ voice has a definitely valid point. Thank you. Remember, you're not alone. Uh, Thank you for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. It's Everybody I know is weird is way. beautifully fucked up in some weird way.